There also returns a series of dreams that I've had since I was about 12. I have a name for these dreams. I call them the Dark Neighborhood. They are all the same, and they go like this. It is the late 50s. I wake up in the middle of the night. My body is filled with tingling energy, and I get out of bed, throw on some jeans and a t-shirt, and I go downstairs. The house is dark, full of the thrill of the night. I go out to the storeroom, get my bike, and ride out into the darkness of Elizabeth Road. The streets are empty, the houses are dark and silent. I ride with almost preternatural speed up Elizabeth and across Eldon, then down Terrell Road to Broadway. As I go down the hill, I am sailing beneath the blinking stoplights like a ghost until I am again in the darkness of the side streets, pumping along Patterson Avenue until I reach a certain spot, a curve in the road. There I stop and take my bike onto a path. This path leads into a substantial wilderness area in the center of North San Antonio called the Almas Basin. Most of the basin is a floodplain. It is totally uninhabited, a place abandoned at that hour of the night. I ride down the path. My front wheel bounces on stones. Suddenly, I am surrounded by total, absolute blackness. Noctivigant presents The Summer of Streber. My ghosties, my ghoulies, and my moth people. Welcome to Noctivigant, the show about the strange, paranormal, otherworldly, and the people who write books about it. My name's Jay, and I am joined by the transformed duo, Nick and Rory. Yo, yo. When did this happen? (laughs) When was I transformed? Today. Oh, God, that explains the full body ache. On this show, we are going to discuss, dissect, and review the best and worst in the world of paranormal and conspiracy literature. So settle in, buckle up, and prepare for a walk on the midnight roads of Noctivigant. guys hi welcome back from the intro music yes we made it yeah we're, we're here we're alive we survived and we, we have made it to the second episode of the summer of streeper summer of streeper streeper i was that like a chipmunk i don't know what that was it was like a fairy tale operaette <laughs> <laughs> like i i imagine like i don't know like a like a fairy but like Dressed like the fat Viking woman from every opera. Uh-huh. I know nothing about opera. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> I've always thought I'd like to go see it, but then I, I don't know. Like, I, it's just, there's never an opportunity. I mean, there is no local opera house anymore. There's the Detroit Opera House. Well, fuck me then, right? I even... <laughs> I'm, I'm not super interested in going to see opera. I do want to go see an actual ballet performed by a proper company at some point. Yeah, sure. You have fun with that. I will stay home that day. I mean, I'm not going. I yeah. said, yeah, sure. Like you have fun. Yeah, yeah. You can drag drag my wife. There's a there's a there's actually a Frankenstein ballet adaption. That's really 
hilarious. Yeah, apparently, um, apparently one of the Russian companies does like the best version of it. I mean, I'm not surprised. Russia and ballet, isn't that like just a thing? Uh, yeah, they, they basic they have ballerina factories, basically. Yeah, just, that sounds about right. It, it, the, what the Chinese government does to talented young female gymnasts, the Russian uh, aristocracy has traditionally done to talented young ballerinas. Hmm. Well, yeah, this right. got dark. Doesn't it always? Let's talk about alien abductions. Because that's not dark. Yeah, because that's less that's less dark. I mean, it's less dark in the in the uh, frame of this of transformation by Whitley Strieber. That is a good point. Uh, Strieber's visitors appear to be like life coaches that just have some, let's call them unique methods. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, this book I feel like uh, definitely acts as a bridge between communion and breakthrough because here we kind of see him starting to move out from the shadow of all that fear. In communion and into uh, into the the bonker stuff that happens in breakthrough. I uh, I I back in my undergrad program, I read a biography of like a of, of like a, an acknowledged Zen master, like a person that has that is acknowledged as having achieved enlightenment in the Zen tradition, and he basically wrote this intricate. Autobi- he wrote this intricate autobiography of his process of going through that enlightenment at the feet of his own master, and I was shocked at how similar some of these chapters sounded to what I read there of the, the, the conflict and the hardship and the constant terror of the truth is worth everything to me, but I think it might kill me, but I'd rather die than not grasp the truth that has been so freely offered to me. Interesting. I mean, it, it is, but it, it does go back to what we were talking about with communion, where if you look at it through a metaphysical light, a lot of the abduction experience, especially Whitley Strieber's abduction experience, uh, mirrors the inward journey made by uh, ancient occultists or mm-hmm. ancient esotericists, I should say. That is the lens through which th- this book makes the most sense when I interpret it, is interpreting this as a holy, as a holy psychic emotional experience that largely came from inside him. Yeah, I mean, I'm not, it's that last part that I'm, de- I'm debating, but I'm sure we'll get into it. Yeah. Uh, all right. So we want to swing right into the summary? Let's do it. All right. Our story begins by returning us to the infamous cabin up north, where the majority of Streber's experiences in communion took place. As Mr. Streber recounts his initial visitations in October and the hypnosis that helped him recover those memories, he finds himself deeply vexed by these visitors. In his mind, which had been influenced by the flower child age and movies like Close Encounters, Visiting aliens were our star brothers, enlightened, peaceful, gentle creatures who came bearing olive branches and great wisdom. But the things visiting him at night did not seem that way. Instead, they filled him with dread and confusion and left him feeling more like prey than a chosen one. But bit by bit, Whitley pushed past his initial shock. Beyond the fear was curiosity, and writers rarely leave curiosity be. In the opening of Transformation, it is April, many months past October. On April 1st, Whitley once again finds himself waking in the middle of the night. He was in a long, curved hallway, the walls and ceiling a stark gray. Two visitors were with him, escorting him along the hall. A second visit occurred the next night, on April 2nd. But this one was far more disconcerting. A little past 3 a.m., Whitley found himself awake, in his own bed this time. Assuming he'd simply jerked awake from anxiety or an unregistered noise, 
he left the bedroom to check on his son, only to find the boy missing. Frantic immediately, Whitley began searching the house for any sign of his child. To his horror, the burglar alarm had been deactivated. Caught up in a mad hope that his adventurous son was merely on a midnight camping trip, why would he be, Whitley threw open the door and sprinted into the night. He did not find Andrew. Instead, he found a great black void covering the sky above his house and blotting out the stars. A full third of the visible sky was covered, hidden by this strange thing. In shock, Whitley initially failed to notice that he had company. Then came the voice, clear as daylight, Can you go back upstairs by yourself, or do you want us to help you? Across the road, three dark figures, all small and blocky in build, hovered above the ground brush, seemingly watching him. In that moment, he realized what was going on. His son was being abducted, and he accidentally interrupted the process. Fighting the urge to scream as terror and grief filled him, Whitley saw the great object in the sky shrinking as it pulled away, moving higher and higher into the sky. Still praying this was a horrible dream, Whitley saw the object disappear and reappear, now a yellow and pink tinged disc no bigger than a dime. Without a sound, it streaked away into the north, leaving Whitley to break down on the lawn, convinced his son was suffering every torment he himself had endured. The visitors watching him repeated their question, and afterwards, Whitley stumbled back to his bed in a daze. Returning to bed, however, was not his decision. Recall those small, floating figures asking him if he needed help getting upstairs? As he battled through his emotions of loss and guilt, Whitley was mechanically moved up the stairs and into his bed. He felt no urge to fight against this control, but he was aware of it and was very frightened for his child. He fell asleep despite the horrors of the night. In what will become a running theme for Mr. Streber, all looked much rosier come the morning. Whitley awoke convinced that he had lost his child the previous night, but it was not so. Andrew burst into the room, unscathed in his normal happy self. The whole thing, for a few moments, could be written off as a dream. But while much of the fear was gone, the strangeness lingered. That afternoon, Whitley remembers time freezing briefly. All the noises of the forest cut out, and his family was locked in place, unresponsive. As the evening progressed, Andrew said several things that, frankly, would have sent me scrambling for the nearest Mahayana temple, pleading for a karmic consultation. First, he proclaimed the universe to be God's dream and laughed when his father asked, what if God wakes up? Later, he compared the human mind to the space beyond the quasars. We go to find out what's there. Finally, he concluded his personal take on the Diamond Sutra with the most distressing statement of all. You know, I had a funny dream last night. I dreamed I was floating in the woods and this huge eye was looking down at me. It was funny. It was like it was real, but it was a dream. Ah! As we move into Chapter 2, you might be tempted to write off Andrew's statements as merely mimicking his father. That might be possible, but as in communion, Anne and Whitley were going out of their way to keep Andrew more or less in the dark about what was going on. A psychiatrist had examined him and ruled him happy and healthy. His parents wanted to keep it that way. This was part of what left Whitley feeling so helpless. He had been given, in his mind, concrete proof that he could not protect his son. His conflicting feelings about these visitors fractured further, leaving him depressed and paranoid. He continued writing communion, clutching it like a life raft, even as visions and flashbacks of his abductions continued to eat away at him. The nights were the hardest. 
While courage was in ready supply during the day, letting him feel curious, or at least more stable, the nights robbed him of all security. The midnight hours were by far the hardest. But the light always comes back, doesn't it? In the second week of April, just before dawn, Whitley was awakened yet again. Not by panic, not by aliens, not by his own bladder. Glowing, brilliant light had filled his room in Manhattan, seemingly coming from nowhere and making sleep impossible. Beautiful and golden, the light both filled and swallowed him. Once again, Whitley found himself somewhere else. He was inside the light, flying, seeing wondrous visions. In a sea of darkness, magnificent towers rose up, pouring out pristine white light, drawing Whitley towards them. Below him was a city of unparalleled beauty, but utterly devoid of people. Windows were empty, doors stood open, not a single sound reached his ears. Whitley opened his eyes, found himself back in bed, closed his eyes, found himself back in this strange city. His heart was threatening to burst. Beauty and emotion and a great sense of mankind's self-ignorance filled him. He felt as though a magnet had drawn him here to show him this sublime place. Dotted throughout the city were structures that reminded him of stadiums, all stuffed with various lights that blinded him. Able to control his motions here, Whitley explored and found one building that brought new waves of emotions. This building somehow brought him back to his late childhood. His observations of it filled him with memories of realizing that adulthood loomed on the horizon, that the immaculate season was drawing to a close. Desperately, he flew towards it. Deep inside, he knew that that building held all the greatest truths of humanity, the end of our self-ignorance. But, like many things, this prize wasn't meant for him. An invisible force buffeted him back, out of this glorious vision and into his physical body. While this dream never recurred, it did change him fundamentally. Streber feels that he carries the Golden City in his heart. Quote, It stands within me as an answer to the rage and the helplessness and the confusion of the visitor experience and of my life. Somewhere there is a place where the truth is known. Moving into Chapter 3, we see how this vision affected Whitley in his waking life. The results may not surprise you. Despite his conflict and his trepidation, the city had given him new hope regarding the visitor's intentions. The Golden City, he sensed, was a true paradise, the pinnacle of mankind's spirituality. No religious supremacy, no racism, no violence, no ignorance. A place of true acceptance. He compared it to our myths of Atlantis, the mythical perfect city that our explorers have gone hunting for so many, many times. Was this Golden City the true root of those tales? Apparently, weeks before this vision, Mr. Schreiber said he'd been fantasizing about a benevolent empire established on Earth by the visitors, a guiding hand bringing humanity to its highest self. You'd think the Golden City would be a confirmation of that, right? Well, you know how earlier I referenced April 1st mm -hmm. uh, before Andrew's abduction? Here's what happened after he woke up in the Great Hallway. Streber was led along by two dwarf-like visitors, each one of whom held one of his forefingers. He had been dressed in a ridiculous paper-white gown that went to his feet. It made him think of the British Raj. Whitley, stunned by the dwarves' blue skin, commented on their color and was chuckled at. Quote, We used to be like your blacks, but then we decided this was better. Again, that is direct quote. Yep. Whitley feels this was a moment that directly challenged his unconscious racism. 
The dwarves were not, however, parading him around for fun. They had a mission. Whitley was brought before an entirely different group of visitors, these ones on a raised dais, all with an air of formality and strict rules. Physically, Streber compared them to termites, milky white skin so pale you can see through it. After being led to a circle on the floor in front of them, he was bid to give them a lecture. A lecture on why the British Empire collapsed. <laughs> and he's dressed like a Raja. That's interesting. <laughs> Despite being far from an expert, Streber found himself overflowing with facts and knowledge, going on long after he wanted to stop talking. He talked so long, in fact, that he collapsed before the judgmental onlookers. As he lay on the floor, they twisted the knife a bit, falsely praising his intellect and his astuteness. When they were done, they sent him away, led once again by the dwarves. He left the room feeling highly ashamed. In Streber's interpretation, this was directly meant to undo his longing for benevolent masters. The very lecture to come out of his mouth placed assumptions of racial superiority as the downfall of the empire. Once again being taken along the hallway, Streber was shown another devastating sight. A drawer filled with dead blue dwarf visitors, wrapped in cellophane and stacked on top of each other. Whitley notes here that, much, much later, he'd come to see this as the first step in his initiation, stage one of learning to not fear death. And that's going to bring us into our first discussion question. I'm ready. Okay, buddy. (laughs) Yeah, uh, uh, okay, buddy. (laughs) Question one. All of that in mind, and drawing on both personal experience and prior research, what is the Golden City, and what significance does it hold in the phenomenon's larger context? Oh, boy. Um, I mean, there's, ah, there's so many ways to interpret that. So what is the Golden City? I mean, I, looking at this metaphorically, as I tend to, tend to think most of these experiences should be viewed, I, I couldn't help but note uh, the description of the city as existing in this vast, dark field. You know, like, it, there, nothingness, effectively. You have this island of light in the middle of nothingness. Um, and you have these you know, towers that are spewing off this constant r- spray of light. And one other thing he, he noted in the book, uh, which, st- which stuck with me, was that there was no shadows. There was light, but there was no shadows. Like, darkness could not live within the city. And so, I, I guess taking all that together, I would think maybe that was a representation of the beyond of the other world put into a form he could understand. A city is a place of is a place to live. It is a place to operate and work. It exists within a large field of nothingness. It is. It is what is true reality. And then I was thinking about those towers. What if that was some way like a metaphoric representation of kind of the projectors from which real our physical reality is created? You know, we have light, truth in its purest form coming off these towers. Kind of, I was—I mean, I was just picturing light off a projector. What if that is what is meant in the end, radiating to us as physical reality as we understand it? Now that said, I am—I I don't know. I mean, that—that's me. Uh, that's me stretching a bit. I do think, by and large, it represents metaphorically the the other plane, uh, wherever you want to call it, being heaven, hell, uh, the spirit world, astral. I mean, I, I guess it wouldn't be astral because. Later on, he goes to Astro, and it's not this, but <laughs> yeah, no, it's still it's still interesting. Um, the where where it fits in with the rest of the phenomenon. I mean, if what I just suggested is true, and that is the other world from which reality generates, then 
it, I mean, it, it is intimately tied to the phenomenon because it's intimately tied to all of existence. Uh, you know, because if that's the truth, that is the source. That's the perennial philosophy, the core nugget of gold at the center of reality. Um, I mean, beyond that, the only other thought I had was that it was some way a representation of a place that the others may live at when they're not embodied. Uh, because we've been talking about maybe they come into this world and take on physical form here. So maybe that was just showing them their home. But that said, we've seen other indications that I'm sure we're going to talk about later in the book, which uh, seem to go against that. So I really don't know. The Golden City is inexplicable. <laughs> That's Ain't that fair. the truth? Yeah. Uh, I think ultimately, I, I agree with like the base of what you said, Nick that my interpretation of the golden city is it was some other world, other plane, heaven, hell, symbolically, you know, that is what I think it was meant to uh, represent. But, you know, like there's a part of me that's like, if this was something that was shown by the visitors, maybe it was a glimpse of what could be, you know, like what he should be striving to achieve. Right. Because they, if the if it's like a glimpse of their reality or or something like that, then maybe they were trying to show it to him so that he would have a goal, right? Mm -hmm. You have you you come come here or get a get a glimpse of what we see and what we deal with or what we look at every day or or what some equivalent to that his mind could comprehend. And to try and get him set on this path to enlightenment, so to speak. You know, uh, Rory, what you're talking about there, give me a thought. So You're welcome. <laughs> so the building that supposedly contains all the mysteries of mankind, it, 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 he is trying to reach it, but he can't. Um, and I guess if we take this and we put it into the frame of reference of, say, Western esotericism, well, if this is his inward journey, a rite of initiation, um, and throughout the book, I mean, especially in this Golden City portion, what he continually hits upon is that the greatest tragedy befalling mankind is that we lack knowledge of ourself, of our true selves. Mm -hmm. So in that line of thinking, what if that it is not really so much the other world, or maybe this is the same thing, but it is his inner world. What it is that is him glimpsing, I guess, the city that sits at the core of his being. So it's kind of like giving him a glimpse of what's past the finish line if he is willing and strong enough to go through all the traumas that he'll face throughout the rest of this book and in the previous book and in the next book. A glimpse of what would happen if he if he reaches past that seventh seal, so to speak? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, absolutely. If you want to look at it from a Jenny Tyson alchemical lens, absolutely. Yeah, that's just, it was so recent. It was still in my mind. Well, especially because if we think about what, I mean, Here's the thing. Most of uh, most of the individuals uh, discussed in the Lockman book who experienced this transcendence, uh, the last thing they saw was, I guess, a mirror of the self. At the very core, they saw themselves. So, at the core of Streber, he saw a building where theoretically knowledge of the self lives. Right. So, it maybe maybe it wasn't the end goal, but it got him close enough. It pointed him, saying, "This is where you're headed if you are willing to go through walking through all this darkness to reach this city." I definitely think in, in like, no matter what, that it is, well, I guess not no matter what, because I could be completely wrong, uh, but I, I definitely think that it is some sort of, like, internal journey or 
like glimpse of some sort of internal journey that it was because that it makes sense. And look at like, it ends up almost haunting him, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, so I, 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 I don't know. It would be like, for me, it would be like somebody showing me a glimpse of like the, uh, you know, wherever I plan or wherever I think I'm going to go when I die or whatever, like the end life goal is, and then not being able to ever get to it again, you know, but it's stuck there in the back of your mind forever. Yeah. It just sounds like torture. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if it was meant to goad. I think I, I lean towards more. It was meant to goad him into action. Yeah, no, I think a lot of the things that we're going to talk about from them were meant to goad him into action. Yeah, it was trying. I think it was, I think really at the end of the day, uh, the over the picture that I got over the course of communion and transformation of what the visitors are doing is yes, they're invading his life and yes, they're making him experience these things. But at the end of the day, it almost always seems curtailed towards coming to a deeper understanding of himself. Um, For the most part. I mean, yeah, there are some things they do, which I, I don't understand. Uh, and Mr. Streber doesn't seem to understand why they're doing it. The cardboard suit haunts me like few other things we've read about. I love the cardboard suit. I really do, in my heart of hearts, hope that it was just that the aliens were sitting there. It's like, well, this is going to be a very formal meeting. What do they wear for formal meetings? Business suits? None of those will fit me. We'll have to make one. Uh, and mm-hmm. the only material they could find was an old refrigerator box. So they woke Andrew up in his bedroom and they got out his crayons and they got to work. <laughs> that's exactly, that's my favorite way to picture of it. And they're like, okay, okay, puppet Andrew, because we don't know how to use safety scissors. They're beyond us. Like our fingers aren't meant to use tools that crude. Uh, they don't even need to puppet Andrew. He's just like, oh, you want me to make you a cardboard suit? Yeah, fine. If you'll let me go back to sleep, I have school tomorrow. Like, what the fuck? Yep. I, I love that. So I want to make a cardboard suit and like wear it to a UFO con with nothing but that, that and an alien mask and see who gets the reference. Uh, I'm sure there would be plenty of people who would get it. There's a lot of, you know, UFO nerds out there. Yeah. It might it would be worth suffering the thousands of paper cuts and the chronically dry skin after I take the cardboard off. For me, the the thing that intrigues me most about the Golden City is the fact that it's empty. There there's nobody there. And part of me is part of me is wondering I have a couple of different thoughts about what it could possibly like if I'm analyzing this like it was a novel, like what could this potentially represent within the narrative? And part of me is then pulling from things Whitley talks about later about the idea that it's like there was something humanity had in its early days that we lost as we industrialized or, or whatever. And it's, is that what the golden city stands for is the truth that we forgot as we moved out of the trees and in, as we moved out of the trees and into office buildings. Well, that's actually seems like it's been a reoccurring theme amongst a lot of adopt, abduction or really just a lot of uh, literature you know because that that goes all the way back to secret teachers because you think like left brain right brain because ultimately the more we've come into like our logical more you know logical thinking whatever the less we are in touch with the i don't want to say the fun side but the fun side of our (laughs) brains and it's like the less we think outs no, I don't want to say think outside the box but the less that we see it from a more spiritual perspective 
Hmm. It seems like. You know, no, I, 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 I do also no, I wonder if the city wasn't empty, he simply couldn't perceive the, the residents. Or if, on, if what you're saying like, was right, and this is his own internal thing, they can only glimpse, they can only show him a glimpse of how it stands now, but he hasn't filled it yet. That's interesting. Or maybe he was being kept from seeing that the only residents were him. Like, it was just a thousand streamers doing work and going about their business because it's ultimately inside him. Like the office inside SpongeBob's head? Huh. Yeah. 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 yeah, actually, that's a great, that's a great description. The, in, the Golden City is the office inside SpongeBob's head. <laughs> we, have, we have solved the phenomenon, ladies and gentlemen. Um, we can go home, turn the podcast off, go, go away, think about normal things, get into baseball. I have uh, I have I have one I have a couple of other things that I think the that I think the Golden City might represent and part of like you know Nick it's interesting that you brought up of it's like maybe it's their home reality and again going the off of the idea of like but it's empty and later on in the book and this will this will come up later on in the summary he he has some encounters with the visitors that lead him to believe that it's like they gave something up to come here and and help me along they gave up something incredible and indescribable they gave up union with perfect love i think he describes it at one point to come here were they showing him of it's like this is where we could have lived this is where we could have been but we couldn't stand the idea that you weren't here too so we came back you know that's that's also possible because i mean we we've seen the visitors in these books hit an idea like that before that they are making some sort of great sacrifice to come here and do this. So maybe, yeah, it was, it was a view of paradise standing empty because they, we were the one species who couldn't get our shit together and they decided, Hey, let's go, uh, let's go save the war apes. Now I really hope that's not true because I got to tell you, if we get, you know, capital D cosmic disclosure, and it turns out that, like, we're this fucked up backwater who can't get our shit together. We're the only ones I would feel shame forever. It's not your fault. I Somehow it is. No. Oh, yeah. No, no. I, For the love of God, I don't man. think you understand. It will be my fault in my head. I, I will take on the, the sins of humanity. Bro. You're not Jesus. You know, yeah, you're not an alcoholic cult leader living in the desert. Also, let's not yet. He does keep trying to become a cult leader, though. <laughs> oh, my God, you are Jesus. Uh, let's just although I will say this. Let's just face the facts. If some dudes came along and said, hey, stop what you're doing or we're going to nail you to this wood, I would probably stop. I, I am very pain adverse. I mean, yeah, <laughs> good. <laughs> I don't want you to get nailed to wood. I don't want to get nailed to wood, so we're on, the, we're on the same page. You're my friend. Well, thank God we've established that friendship in Jay's book means stopping your friends from being violently crucified. That is at least one one part. Yeah, I mean, it's a facet. <laughs> it's a facet of a very complex gem. It's the only one I'm going to focus on now. That's weird. Yeah, I know. Um, we do a podcast together. That's also a facet. That's quality time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> let's keep going. <laughs> yeah, let's keep going. Whitley's turmoil after this bizarre event only continued. Worse than ever was his terror over his son being taken again. While Anne soldiered on, unflappable as ever, Streber himself turned to the one thing that had never failed him. Books. 
At this time, he was still viewing the visitors as space aliens, as a nuts-and-bolts reality. But their behavior, as mentioned earlier, did not fit the model he'd been primed to expect. His research, which in part covered our friend Jacques Vallée, was what let him move forward. For the first time, he began considering the psi and non-physical angle. It was one of the only things that made sense of what he was reading. Take, for example, the work of Leonard Keane, who recorded many instances of contactees under hypnosis beginning to speak fluent Gaelic. This was in spite of many of them never having heard the language before. Here, too, Anne was essential, drawing his mind towards the idea of objective reality being distorted by our cultural preconceptions. Perhaps, Strieber reasoned, he had more power over this situation than he'd previously believed. Chapter 5 takes us to the Conference on World Affairs, a public summit where a wide range of panels are offered. Still in the process of publishing Communion, Schreiber was nervous to face his friends and colleagues again. Still, he was determined to attend and to consult them. He was sick of treading water. Keeping most of his questions hypothetical, or letting the alien angle be more implied than anything, he braved the University of Colorado and tried to get some answers. One of the most intriguing friends he met with was Dora Ruffner, an occultist whom he hoped could help decode the imagery of his recovered memories and of his visitors' behavior in general. Ruffner did, in fact, have a lot to say. In regard to the uncovered memories and the odd behavior of the visitors, Ruffner posited that this might be some sort of initiation journey, aiming to help him uncover some sort of great inner secret. Another friend, NPR host Margot Adler, was less optimistic. Hypotheticals aside, the creatures Whitley described to her sounded evil, and he had trouble not integrating this view into his own. Understandable, given how consistently terrified these encounters left him. That terror would not be abating anytime soon. On the night of April 9th, Strieber and Ruffner meditated together, and Strieber maintains that he could sense her presence in his mind. Later that night, a vision came to him, though it is not entirely clear if this came before, after, or at the same time as the Golden City vision. Once again, his room was filled with light, this time blue. Thunder cracked outside, and he had the sense that this light was somehow meant to enter his mind. Compelled to lie down on his bed, Strieber entered a vivid and grim dream. First, he saw a nuclear power plant having a catastrophic accident, melting down and pouring toxic contaminants into the air. This plant strongly resembled Chernobyl, and the vision occurred long before that accident. In the vision, a blonde man desperately tried to explain something, but Whitley couldn't understand. The man jumped into a black sedan and drove towards the exploding plant, for some reason, hmm. as the vision changed. Now, Strieber found himself back in his cabin, with his family. Outside, the moon was exploding. Bursting apart and raining huge meteors down from the sky, terrified and unable to process what was happening, Strieber gathered his wife and child and they fled into the woods to a spot that Strieber knew. They knelt on the ground and huddled together. Whitley singing to his family as the world ended all around them. That's what I would do if the world was ending, too. I would sing at you guys. Yeah? No. No, you don't want that. I'd be screaming. Yeah, no, I'd probably be, like, sobbing uncontrollably. And yeah, screaming. Jay would have to console me. I, I would be consoling you in between stuffing fistfuls of edibles and mushrooms into my mouth if it's just like, I don't even want to process this. Oh, yeah, no, we're not going out sober. <laughs> I, quite honestly, I'd probably just go to bed. Like I'd probably, I'd probably go get my wife and go to bed, and 
and cuddle my wife as the world ends. That would be, I mean, re- realistically, that's what I'm doing. I wouldn't, I, w- I wouldn't go to bed. I would be sitting out and doing something that I enjoy for the last moments of my life. What did I just say? Yeah, but I'm going to go do something I enjoy. Yeah, sleep is boring. I, I'm not going to sleep. Fire up one of my Borderlands 3 saves and just being like, I'm going to kill Captain Tromp one last time. <laughs> Worthy. A worthy last act on this earth. For, for real, I mean, Tront's great to kill. All iterations of him. There's Moving so on. many. The next morning, Streber did his best to forget the haunting nightmare and focus on the conference. Later, however, he consulted with a friend called Dr. Gleedman and described these bizarre images to him. From this conversation, Streber drew some tentative conclusions. Firstly, that the first half of his vision was yet more of his nuclear anxieties bobbing to the surface of a distressed mind. It would be years before Chernobyl, and Streber had no reason to consider this vision prophetic. The second part, however, seemed much more symbolic. Several ideas are floated here for what this might represent. Firstly was the idea that the visitor experience was a personal apocalypse, the destruction of the life he had led before them, and the alteration of all he had believed in. On the other hand, the moon is associated with sleeping, dreaming, and illusion. It has also been associated with the older traditions that Streber thinks were lost in the modern age, creator goddesses and the sanctity of nature. These religions, in Streber's understanding, were destroyed by the rise of Christianity and that the fall of Rome had spurred on apocalyptic thought. Perhaps, Streber speculates, this is still a symbolic apocalypse, but one for all of mankind. Could a new era be dawning, one that would end our old world and bring us into a new one? The parallels he draws between ancient apocalyptic thought and modern UFO cultists insisting that the great change is just around the corner are sound. Apocalypticism, at its core, is about paradise after fear and horror, which is more than apt here. And, like many of the prophets of old, Whitley was soon hearing voices. Some stern, some childlike, many or just one at a time. Brief messages were dropped into his ear every now and then. In Chapter 6, we return to the cabin, in the waking world this time, and the moon remains in one piece. Anne was away on a trip, leaving Andrew and Whitley to their own devices. On Friday night, the Streber men felt themselves drawn to the cabin, an urge too powerful to resist. Braving the insane traffic, they finally made it to their little hideaway, and things got crazy almost at once. (laughs) Continuing the pattern of spooky assholes coming into Whitley's room and bothering him, the door to his bedroom opened and a diminutive being dressed all in white came inside. The creature perched on his bed. To Streber, it seemed angelic, pure. Looking into this creature's eyes felt like, quote, entering another world. And the look triggered it to say, I want to talk to you about your death. So that's terrifying. But before Whitley could panic, the edge of the creature's sleeve touched his arm, filling him with peace. It continued, imparting these words. Your metabolism has been altered. If you continue to eat sweets, you cannot hope to live very long. And if you eat chocolate, you will die. This was not its final pronouncement. Next it told him, in three months' time, you will take one of two journeys on behalf of your mother. If you take one, you will die. If you take the other... You will live. I, I I do just have to point out one thing. Um, if I if 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 ETs visited my bedroom and told me, "Hey, 
We messed with your body, and because of that, if you eat chocolate, you're gonna die. I would sue. I would. Th- <laughs> I would flip my shit because, god damn it, life is hard enough. Don't take sweets from me. Says the person who absolutely needs to eat less sweets. Do you see? Do you see my rage here? <laughs> I mean, I do. I don't think. I don't think we should go to the levels your rage takes you. Those are jokes, good sir. Ninety-two percent of the time, they're jokes. <laughs> When Streber told Anne about the visit, he kept the sweets rule to himself. Because this is America, and no hippie angel with magic sleeves is going to put us on a goddamn diet. (laughs) His mother, a phone call confirmed, was doing just fine, and Streber ate plenty of chocolate without dropping dead. I wish I could say I didn't think of the apple in the Garden of Eden, but we all know I did. (laughs) What I find most interesting about this incident is the red haze. To clarify, Streber didn't recall this conversation until his wife came home. Instead, when he tried to remember that night, there was only a reddish fog. When she did come back, the very first thing he remembered was this statement, You won't remember any of this until Anne comes back. As we covered in communion, Streber had begun having recollections of visitor experiences that occurred in his childhood or young adult years. The first of these came from hypnoregression, but due to the fact that Streber felt that more and more of these were actually false, he and Dr. Klein had put that technique to bed. One of those experiences appears to be linked to the dark neighborhood dreams I read to you earlier. There are also several reports from childhood friends and neighbors who recounted young Whitley being deeply afraid of aliens and telling odd stories at sleepovers. But for the purposes of this discussion, we're going to focus on what happened in Rome. By the time Streber was in college, it seems that he had largely stopped talking about space aliens. But one summer had been lost to his memories. Before the events of communion, he recalled spending those months in Florence, Italy. He was allegedly traveling with a woman he could no longer locate. He recalls fleeing from the tunnels beneath the Vatican, frightened by something he can't quite remember. He also vaguely recalls afterwards being on some sort of odd plane where a stewardess put strange drops on his tongue. A blonde man, there he is again, sat beside him, calling himself Streber's coach. The plane, apparently, smelled bad enough that Streber could recall this vividly. The coach read to him from a strange book, and after the flight concluded, Streber was carried out through a floor hatch by beings who were identical to the blue dwarves we talked about earlier. In order to piece this distorted summer together, we need to go back even further, to 1972. Apparently, 14 years before the events of this book, Streber spontaneously uncovered several distorted memories. At the time, he thought it was just his imagination running wild, but it seems that these memories pick up where the plane images leave off. These recalled memories, if that is what they are, are as follows. Streber journeyed to a vast desert. It was perpetually daylight there, and the sky was tan instead of blue. The little blue men led him through this desert to a beautiful oasis. A path cut through it, defined by a massive arch. This arch, according to them, was a monument dedicated to the achievements of the scholars. A crumbling building was there, too. This, the little men said, was a university that was over one million years old and still in use. It was only falling to pieces now, apparently, because learned men have no idea how to properly maintain a building. Entering the university, which he was keen to do, 
involved crawling over volcanic rocks in order to reach a side door. However, his progress was blocked by two diamond-eyed greys, who promptly told his dwarfy friends that he wasn't ready yet. These greys, however, had a lunch date or something and took off, giving the dwarves full reign to let him inside. Inside the university, a round room of dark green stone overlooked the desert. Once he was standing inside this circle, Streber felt an overwhelming urge to dance. As he did so, he moved in and out of other people's lives and memories, seeing glimpses of many different eras of the past. When he was finally forced to stop, the dwarves took him out of the university and to a different building, a three-story adobe structure where he was apparently expected to live. He slept on the floor of an unfurnished room for at least a while. Once, he apparently woke to find two normal-looking human men dressed in military khakis with one of them filming him. They asked him why he was being kept outside of the enclosure and were pretty pissed off when he couldn't answer. The next memory is of an incredibly pale woman who forced him to eat a bitter fig. After he eats it, he sees a group of other people, some weeping, all standing behind an odd line of white tape some distance from him. Discombobulated, Streber attempted to return to the university, but was rebuffed by the diamond-eyed greys once again. In the present, as he tried to piece these memories together, Streber was growing deeply frustrated, unable to understand why his most impactful experiences were being kept locked away from him. Furthermore, his ongoing research into Jacques Vallée was casting his experiences in stranger and stranger lights. There were so many parallels between his visits and the old tales of fairy abductions. Now, all of that would be wacky enough, but we have some more madness gasoline to dump on this clown fire. In August of 1986, the year that the bulk of this book's events took place in, the Streber cabin was visited by a friend. This man was also familiar with Dr. Gleedman, and while the man himself asked to remain unnamed, is alleged by Streber to be a respected documentarian. In the early 80s, this man was approached by someone from the Air Force who claimed they were willing to help him create a documentary on aliens and UFOs. The filmmaker met with him at an airbase. Allegedly, he was shown a highly classified document that detailed records of crashed flying disks and contact with non-human life. Something believed to be the same document would surface the next year in 1987. And here are the gist of its contents. Four incidences of crash disks were recorded, two in New Mexico, one in Arizona, and one in Mexico. At each crash site, bodies were recovered. They were described as four feet tall, gray-skinned, and hairless. They had large heads and thin bodies with flat faces lacking both ears and nose and a narrow slit for a mouth. In this document, they are referred to as grays. Very interesting that it says two in New Mexico. Yeah. I, they're probably talking about Roswell and Trinity. This is the only ones I could think of. But Trinity, at the time of this... The publishing of this book was not well known. Yeah. It was not known at all. Yeah. There are, like, they, Outside of the Padillas. Yeah, there's no, there, there's no way that Streber or this filmmaker would have known about the second crash in New Mexico. Unless there are other ones that we're unaware of. Well, one other uh, connection I noticed, which I want to point out, uh, when Streber was being quizzed about the fall of the English Empire, or rather he was being asked to give a lecture on it, he described them uh, kind of like as termites, right? Yeah, uh, that was the same exact uh, description yes. that Jose Padilla said of the craft, the creatures he saw at the crash site yep. in Trinity. 
I'm now remembering thinking that the first time I read uh, that portion said, of the book. He said they're ter- like termites or fire ants, yep. which very similar. The big black glassy eyes, kind of insectile movements. Wild. 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 <laughs> Mild. Thank you, Nick, for, for providing some diversity in opinions. I had to bring us down a level. Thank you. The document also describes direct contact with a survivor of one of these crashes, an entity they called EB, which stood for Extraterrestrial Biological Entity. Very rude that they didn't just ask this person what its name was. I know it's an alien. You can figure out how to pronounce it, you jerks. The government officials were told by EB that the Greys had undergone long-term invention intervention in human affairs, including manipulations of mankind's biological sociocultural and religious evolution then eb died and they're not really sure why the government has spent the subsequent decades trying to get a handle on the situation or at least gain some insight and apparently have been failing what is most intriguing for our discussion is the fact that the document had some scant details on the gray's alleged home world In the document, the planet is described as having a tan sky, a desert environment, and is orbiting a binary star. The binary star prevented a proper day-night cycle. All of this struck Whitley as highly familiar, directly correlating to the memories or images he'd been carrying around since 72. For over eight hours, he and the filmmaker compared notes, finding many similarities between the remembered contents of the document and Whitley's hazy experiences. Sadly, the planned film fell through. The director and financial backers were promised footage of these retrieved bodies and crash discs, but it never materialized. No video, no money, no interest. Both Streber and the filmmaker think the document was targeted disinformation, possibly even a sabotage of the intended film. And that's actually going to bring us into discussion question number two. Woo, let's do it. I know I skipped over a ton of interesting stuff, but we're trying to move along here. And what I'd like to talk about right now is what do we make of this disinformation idea and for what purpose would they be sowing this for these people? So when you say disinformation idea, you mean the do- the one that was talking to the document, the, the dude making the documentary? Yeah, basically, what do we think of this of this theory floated by Whitley and his friend that this was disinformation? And what do we think the purpose behind that disinformation might have been? Well, if any, I mean, what's the purpose of any disinformation to, to spread disinformation, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, to, to hide information. And, and I think, if anything, the, wh- whoever it was, if you know, said person was real and actually had any of the, the, the stuff that they said they did, which I don't think, I don't think they did, um, the purpose of it w- was to send this person probably spiraling into some rabbit hole looking for this information, or rather, put the documentary that this guy was making into uh, at a complete standstill because they were given a promise of something that doesn't exist. So when that nothing ever came, it squashed the documentary. So maybe this guy, whomever he was, was onto something and they just wanted to squash it. Well, and on the same note, if he did, let's say he did, he didn't get the video he was promised. What would have happened if that filmmaker had gone ahead and made the documentary anyway, but like just included an interview with him about what he saw in that document? Immediately, that 
would open him up to being discredited. Because what do you say? There's no evidence. It's just your hearsay. You made a whole documentary so you could tell us about something you think happened to you, right? It, it, a lot of people wouldn't buy it. Yeah, no. I, I mean, uh, how many times do you talk about on here how little witness testimony is given any kind of uh, uh, you know, weight in anything? Well, and especially even when in situations, say, specifically regarding the paranormal, when you have multiple witnesses or you have witnesses who are looking at something from different angles or who see it at different times, um, but it doesn't matter because you just saw it. It doesn't it, it doesn't compute for a lot of people. It doesn't add to anything. Uh, I mean, granted, I do think some of those people you would have to physically drag them into a saucer and fly them around the world for them to really uh, be willing to entertain it. But that, that's neither here nor there. Um, I, I do think if I do think it's an interesting idea that this disinformation, I think it's quite possible, um, especially because we've seen this kind of behavior before from our from the government in other books that we've covered. I mean, look at uh, UFOs over the White House. That basically was a long book. Well, it was just a long story of nothing but let's watch the government make the decision to start spreading disinformation like it. it um, and. Beyond that, the fact that a lot of the details in the document aligned with things that Streber had experienced and seen actually wasn't a surprise to me because the best way you you commit disinformation is by giving out information. Uh, you say, I'm going to we're going to say, let's say we have 40 percent of the full picture of what's going on. We're going to take five percent of that, add tw- adds, you know, 95 percent bullshit to it. And we're going to release that. Yes, there are some elements which. To the uh, people who are already believing this, already experiencing it, or already researching it, they're going to latch onto that, and then that's going to lead them to chasing down all the bullshit. It's uh, like Rory was saying; it presents them with a field of rabbit holes to get lost in, so they never actually find anything, because they're they're always they're going to be saying, "Well, this one element is supported in the canon. It's supported by experiencers. It's supported by Whitley Strieber. Maybe these other elements are true." When ultimately you're never going to be asking the real question of where does that that first true element actually lead you? Like, for example, I again, I'm still not convinced. I'm still I mean, I'm not convinced truly of anything regarding the paranormal outside of that. I think something's going on. Um, That said, I I think the more we uh, research and the more we look into it, I, well, I am still 100% okay with there being uh, other pla- interplanetary ETs, and I think that's very, very likely, um, uh, including that they might be visiting us. I don't think that that is the core of what people are experiencing. Or if it is, they have some capability that steps beyond, I guess, the framework of what we would understand as science in our modern day. It, it verges into uh, spirituality, paranormalism, uh, psychic phenomenon. It seems to represent i i even hesitate to call it a technology but that's as close as we can get uh it represents a technology that is able to play with the very fundamental building blocks of reality down to the elements of reality that our science has yet to, to say exist uh cuz we we know about physical reality and we are we now are beginning to heavily heavily suspect uh, something more but that's it we we have, we don't even we haven't even confirmed it's real Yet they seem to have some technology that not only allows them to move between immaterial material, but to play merry hell with uh, our material world to the point that it's it's malleable. It's it's entirely uh, 
It almost makes it almost makes our physical reality into a dream state. It's like they can bring dream logic into reality, which is a terrifying idea to me because my dreams suck. That's interesting, especially like, I mean, I don't know, dream reality makes me think of like the astral and they definitely seem to play with that. Well, yeah, well, I mean, well, think about it. Think about his experiences. I mean, I sure we're dealing with fragmentary memories that he recovered years later. And many of them, uh, you know, he doesn't he himself doesn't know if they're real or not. But that said, taking a look at these these uh, memories he's uncovering, they don't work in a in a purely logical means like because. All right. Well, I, I got on a plane and then I got off onto this planet and I got and I was invited into the well, then there was some uh, you know back and forth about if I could get in this magic dance circle and then I got to go in the magic dance circle and I got to dance. And then I went to sleep and I woke up and some army guys were standing over me. You know, there, there's not a lot of logical through line to it, but that sounds an awful lot like dreams I've experienced where, you know, hey, I was uh, playing with some friends and now there's a dinosaur on the road. Why is there a dinosaur on the road? Because there's a dinosaur on the road and you got to deal with it. <laughs> you know, uh, the dream doesn't need to make sense. And that seems to be the same kind of a uh, level of play that these experiences live in. I I wonder if it's not that the dream it's not that it's not that the dream doesn't make sense it's that it's just it's a puzzle and it's a test that they're giving him for some reason possibly or it's just that it's it's not that it doesn't make sense it's just it makes sense if you are able to complete if you're able to look at it from the right direction okay uh, like saying like I, I I got you listen. You you literally just teed me up for this thing that I was that I've been waiting to see if I could plug in. Go ahead and launch it. So directly into our faces. Gross. <laughs> All right. So bear with me because I might stretch a little bit here. As we all know, I, uh, I I very much like druidry. So one of the things that I found very interesting is uh, well repeatedly through both. Uh, this book and communion is Whitley Strieber talks a lot about fairies, right? And fairy lore. But the one thing that he really doesn't look at is druidry. And I find that interesting. And here's why. So let's imagine for a second that the golden city vision, I'm going back to the previous question, but it, you know, cause we've gone off topic, so it kind of doesn't matter. So Imagine for a second that the Golden City was a vision of the other world, but think of the other world in the terms of Druidry. So the other world in Druidry, there's many, right? But let's think like Anun, and that is uh, it's another area that you can that you can go into, and that's where they believe that uh, some people believe that that's where Awen comes from is is from the other world. You when you tap into and receive Awen, it is receiving. Um, uh, it's coming from the other world. Okay. So let's imagine that the golden city was a vision of the other world. The goal for humans on earth is to seek after Awen, right? Awen is inspiration. In the initial story of Awen, uh, of where this, this idea comes from, is in a story, the story of Taliesin. And I know I'm going to butcher that name because I think it's like... I think it's pronounced slightly different, so I'm sorry that I'm terrible with uh, Welsh pronunciations. Uh, and that story is about Taliesin and the goddess Ceiriwen. 
who is the goddess of rebirth, transformation, and inspiration. Okay? In that story, Guion, who eventually becomes Taliesin, received Awen, even though it was, it was meant for her son, because... Sorry, let me back up. So Awen comes when the potion is brewed, and the first three drops from that potion are drank, give you Awen. The rest become baleful knowledge. So Awen is you know, bright knowledge. The rest of the potion becomes baleful knowledge. So it's the first three drops that are Awen. Okay, and that's relevant because throughout in this book, he has the whole bit about uh, three drops of something, right? On the plane, before he visited the other planet, he was given three drops of a bitter fluid by the stewardess. Correct. That's what that's where it was. And then he went on this like rampage trying to figure out what that might mean, like the whole three drops thing. And this was, of course, where my brain went immediately. So the visitors are showing him this vision, to, and the goal, let's say, is to start him along this path to seek after Awen, inspiration, to seek after, to seek after enlightenment. In the story, Taliesin, uh, Tal- uh, Guion, who becomes Taliesin, gets the three drops. In his vision, the apocalyptic vision, the moon was exploding, right? And all these terrible things were happening. What if that vision was what happens if he doesn't seek after Awen and is all symbolic? The moon explodes. Why is that relevant? That goddess that I mentioned before, the one of rebirth, transformation, inspiration, her name, when translated from Gaelic, means white goddess of the crescent moon. She is considered the goddess of the moon. In one, of, one of the things that she's associated with in Druidry is the moon, which is also part of the, the, the divine circle, which is, you know, life or death, rebirth, or life, death, rebirth. All of this all of this ma- matches up symbolically to everything that he's talked about in here. And also that would make sense with the fact that we have many visitors' names and things they say, uh, which sounds like, you know, alien gobbledygook language when it's spelled out phonetically is actually Gaelic. Yeah, and this is re- it's repeatedly come back and forth within his story specifically. All these different connections to... Uh, to things that I that I've been seeing in druidry, like even all the symbology that's happening, uh, the, even if you want you want to go as, go so far, I mean this is vague, but ultimately you can still make this connection. His connect like all the different natural disaster things that he's seen. Well, in druidry, you are, is druidry is a nature religion. It's a nature faith. So of course that is going to be one of the greatest fears that's happening. I'm not saying within this that. Uh, Whitley Strieber should be uh, a druid, but it seems like, at least to me, that a lot of the symbolism that he's being given draws direct parallels to druidry. You know, it's interesting because, well, thinking through that, I could see uh, two ways to, I guess, look at that connection. One would be that, you know, a lot like we've seen with Jacques Vallée and things like that, that they these others draw heavily from the fairy faith, or maybe the fairy faith is based off interactions with them, mm-hmm. uh, which would in turn influence Celtic Druidry. Um, the other option is, I saw in several points in the, this book, 
he takes an aside to basically say uh, say that he feels we've lo- we lost something when we moved away from the nature religions that we've lost yes. an immediate communion with the world. What if the all the Celtic Druidic imagery is there to try to help? Is there from the others trying to lead him back to one of those root religions? Yeah, no, I I, I was having a very similar thought. Is like what if, like what if they're just like the sweets thing? They're just trying. They're showing him all these things because they're like, bro, you gotta you gotta be more in touch with nature. Living in in the cabin in the woods isn't close enough. Yeah, you know? I mean. <laughs> It could be like, listen, uh, can we just go back to when you guys were like worshiping trees and stuff? You were easier to talk to then. That might be it too. Yeah. And here's the thing is another reason why that would fit is is I mentioned earlier that a, that apocalyptic thought is about the achievement of paradise after great destruction. And it, it it's, I'm also going to draw on the fact that it's like I... I once I once read a really a really interesting piece piece from an indigenous author who said the reason that apocalyptic sci-fi falls flat for Native Americans is we had our apocalypse. And in some ways you could make the argument the Irish had their apocalypse too. And it, it, he was you know it, it, it I can just see so much connection to him talking about the moon, the vision of the moon exploding as his personal apocalypse. And and the thing that you know he's a writer Right. So the idea of seeking after Awen and inspiration is huge. So like that's why that like the the moon exploding to me, like it shows this like symbology of if you don't follow this path, you cannot achieve Awen. You cannot get that inspiration. He's a writer. That would be doom. That's doom. Yeah. That's the end of everything. That's so, that's so, I'm so glad you brought that up. I had no idea about any of that. Yeah, I, I thought it was super, I thought it was super interesting. I hope I explained that very well. I, I explained that well enough that it made sense because I was trying to compress what is about 30 pages of notes in my one note to about two paragraphs. <laughs> you did a good job. Thank you, baby. Well, and I guess one other thing I just want to also point out, um, this is not from Gaelic or Celtic or Druidic lore. But uh, the word apocalypse is thrown around a lot here. And I mean, as, as I'm sure Jay knows, apocalypse means revelation. It doesn't mm-hmm. mean the end of days. It means, yeah. I mean, which I, again, I could see it uh, where the apocalyptic imagery he saw is largely a metaphor for what the revelation of the others would do to our world. Right. Like it, it would, in terms of our society, our way of life, our understanding of ourselves. It's not like, hey, it's going to be different because we're going to enslave you. It's hey, it's going to be different because if you really get us, you're going to fundamentally see reality in a different way and you're, not, you're going to come to new understandings about yourself and the world that you may not want to come to. I mean, I think a lot of this is continuing to point back to some of the, the point back at the idea of like, especially like going back to the nature religions, all of this, like that we need to take a step back from this super high techno- technology world that we've uh that we've become in order to maybe connect with them maybe that's what they're saying that because we've lost that that connection between the left and right side of our uh, our brain so to speak that we cannot achieve whatever vibration or whatever me- mental state that we need to be able to properly communicate or achieve uh any kind of a relationship with them. You know, the one thing is, though, that 
we do know Strieber, though, to be fair, he did have ecological concerns before his abduction experiences. True. He was very afraid of climate change. He he thought we were hurting the world. Um, and I mean, we are, but um, but 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 regardless. So I guess we we are in a bit of a chicken and egg scenario because I could see the argument going both ways that. Well, of course he saw those things. The his experiences and his hallucinations uh shaped themselves to his pre-existing fears. Or it could be that the fact that he was concerned about those things made him a more ideal candidate for contact. Yeah. And to further the chicken and the egg conundrum, at this point he's now he's now become pretty convinced this has been happening since I could form memories. True. So did he develop those ecological concerns spontaneously or did they lead him to them when he was very small? I mean, I think if we take the the narrative we're presented at face value, it's definitely the latter. Uh, because I mean, we, we have um, his feeling that as a child, he would go to classrooms. He would attend a school of other human children who were abducted. Or not just human. Apparently, there were some uh, children there who looked non-human, and they would learn together. Uh, which I believe he has a whole another book called Secret School, which is about that. Which we're not going to be able to cover this summer, but maybe down the line we'll be able to cover that. So that was my side tangent that I wanted to go on about uh, the the goddess of the moon and Awen and how I think it connects to all of those visions. I mean, it makes sense. Fascinating. I- I'm going to be processing on it longer than this episode will take to record. This information, it weighs heavily on my mind. <laughs> I, I would apologize, but it's been eating at me for quite some time. This section of our summary begins with Chapter 11. Two days after the filmmaker's visit, Whitley found himself determined to confront his fears directly. Despite his ongoing hopes of their benevolence and his desire to be close to them, he still feared the visitors so much so that he could not bear to go outside at night and even cringed away from the windows of his home after sunset. To combat this, Streber tried to leave the cabin at night and force himself to walk into the lightless woods that surrounded it. Time and time again, he would fail, often not even making it off the deck. If he did make it off the deck, he'd find himself stuck at the backyard gate, unable to go further out into the trees. His fear was so profound it would sometimes freeze him in place, only allowing him to move when it was back towards the house. He could walk this path in broad daylight with no problem, though the first attempt seemed to exhaust and overwhelm him. After a few days of these attempts, Strieber reflected on how much of his early work held themes of terror towards the unknown, of hiding from unacceptable truths. He could not let this go. He had to master his fear. On the night of August 27th, after another failed attempt, something finally changed. He stayed up late, reading about the same spooky physics that we often cover here, and barely noticed when an ominous glow swept over the house. Both of the family's cats panicked, and then the possible source of this terror announced itself. Nine knocks rang through the room, coming from the outside of the living room wall, 18 feet off the ground with only a sharply slanted and inaccessible roof to balance on. The knocks came in three groups of three, finalized by a softer double knock that seemed to punctuate it. The cats fled, one of them hiding in a small, dark space for nearly 24 hours afterwards. What's more, the knocks came before midnight, and Whitley does not recall the hours between the knocks and going to bed at 2 a.m., He holds two divergent memories of what happened next. 
In one, he is compelled to simply go to bed, not ready to face the visitors knocking outside. In the others, he does go to look. Instead of visiting aliens, he sees a field of yellow flowers and children playing and laughing together. A voice tells him that this field was where the sins of the world were buried. The next day, Streber was beside himself. For months, he'd been operating under a growing belief that the visitors were intangible. Now, they seemed distinctly physical. Could they hurt him? Kill him? But the more he thought about it, the more he realized the knocks could carry a special meaning. For him, at least. In the 70s, a friend of his had taught him a strategy for sorting out difficult conundrums and complex issues by breaking them down into three sets of three. Group one, what is the nature or substance of the problem? What is its origin? What is its composition? Group two, what is its function? Who possesses, controls it, or causes it? What is my opinion of it? Group three, what is my relationship to it? What are my expectations of it? What is its destiny? Streber spends the next few pages sorting out his answers to these questions, wrestling with his conflicted feelings and his lack of knowledge about certain aspects of the events and where he thinks it might all go. By the time he was through, Streber felt oddly better, less out of control. Quote, before the nine questions, the visitors seemed to be in total control. They were terrible, implacable predators. Now I knew the truth. I loved them, wanted them, needed them, chose them, and called them. That newfound trust was soon to be put to the test, however. Months before, the visitors had told Whitley to stop eating sweets. He had not. Now, it seemed that they were getting annoyed. One day, for instance, Streber heard a voice tell him to stop eating his ice cream cone. Remembering the warning from months before, he pitched it. Three voices cheered this decision, and the messages continued, urging him towards a vegetarian diet and directing him away from all caffeine. Listeners may note the similarity to Jenny Tyson's initiation diet. Streber grew frustrated and reached out to these visitors, asking for an explanation for these strict rules. The voices answered him, We will show you. I also thought that was kind of just ominous because that is my diet now. <laughs> like, I, you know, the, the no caffeine thing. Uh, was, uh, you know, because of, mostly because of my ADHD meds, right? Yeah. Uh, so I don't have take caffeine because then it makes my heart go. Oh, yeah. Know. Um, But I'm also a vegetarian now. And so that just kind of like, I don't know, <laughs> I, struck me. Please tell me immediately if blue dwarves start bothering you in our room at night. I will let you know if blue dwarves start bothering me in our room. I'm fairly sure Rory will let us all know by screaming at the top of their lungs. I don't scream. Oh, that's right. Fine. Fine. Uh, but no, screaming in anger and curse words. Yeah, I, I was going to say, I, I might be yelling. That's the word I was looking for. Yelling. You, me, Buffy, and Murphy can all beat them up as a family. <laughs> I'm into it. Like I just, I think, I think they're, I think the panicky animal of of Murphy's overall personality will compel him to like bust out some really weird looking cat kung fu if like he feels <laughs> like there's aliens in the house. It will not be effective, no, because he's stupid and but, fat, <laughs> and also somehow not very, that fat people can't be good at kung fu. He just wouldn't be good at kung fu. You guys don't understand. He's enormous, but he's weak. Yeah. He's very weak. Somehow. Hey, a giant fat panda can do it. So can Murphy. <laughs> you know, fair. Murphy is not Poe the panda. As we all know from the documentary film, Kung Fu Panda. Yeah. 
yeah absolutely reflects reality <laughs> yep that's it that's hope, the one i hope kung fu panda is the one piece of media that survives the destruction of earth i hope they have to try and piece together entire culture from kung fu panda oh I, dear god I that is how I want humanity to be remembered. I'm not not even jokingly like there's there's good values there. At least it's not like a film of Auschwitz is all that's left of us. Oh, God, I I, I love Kung Fu Panda so much. It was legitimately shockingly enjoyable. Jack Black's best performance. The Chinese government had meetings about like, why did an American studio make a film about our culture? That's better than films we make about our culture. This is a real thing. You can look Uh. it up. I believe it. <laughs> Moving on. Despite the tone making him feel like he should wait right there, nothing happened. So, you know, Strieber immediately went to a cabinet and ate a few Dove chocolate bars out of spite. Naturally. Something, however, did come up later. On October 7th, Strieber received a call from friend and colleague Felipe Mora, an Australian film director. Mora had heard of Strieber's experiences prior to this. At the time, he had taken very little interest. Now, however, their mutual acquaintance, Martin Sharp, was witnessing something very odd happening to his mother. Mrs. Sharp was dying of both liver cancer and diabetes, and on the night of October 6th, had had a very strange visit. Odd little men, much like Whitley's dwarves, had gathered around her bed and levitated her off of it towards the ceiling. She could recall feeling their physical touch, calling their bodies soft and slimy. Miss Sharp abruptly found herself standing in a park at sunset, watching wind blow through the grass and trees. She was filled with despair until one of the small men presented her with a blue silk robe. When she put it on, the sun sank below the horizon and she was lifted into the air, only to be returned to her bed, no harm done. Afterwards, Mrs. Sharp's condition declined rapidly. She lapsed into a diabetic coma, requiring a sugar-based treatment to reawaken. Her son and a family friend named Yen Soon attested that her behavior grew very strange. Sometimes she was mostly herself, cooperative and banal. Other times, her behavior was so odd that it bordered on malevolence. During these times, she refused all treatment, as if trying to hasten her end, and would pretend to be asleep, apparently with the aim of tricking her caregivers. Yen Soon transcribed her account of the visit before this odd dementia took over, and Strieber notes that he describes all of it in his own cultural terms, noting that blue is a funeral color in China and that the small men sounded as though they resembled Chinese mushrooms. Once again, Strieber attempted to give up sweets, heeding this strange warning, but only made it four days. He warns the readers that the visitors will retaliate later in this book, the advantage of being from the future. (laughs) In chapter 15, which opens part three of the book, Strieber manages something almost as hard. He goes outside at night. Part of him sensed the visitors could end his fear of the night and of them in an instant, possibly just by walking openly into his house sans the theatrics. But he also sensed that that was, quote, unethical, or not how they were meant to do things. No, this he had to do alone. On September 26th, the Streepers returned to the cabin, and Whitley braved the night alone. Taking only a small flashlight and surrounded by the music of insects and amphibians, he forced himself across the deck and towards the backyard gate. One stiff, crazed step at a time, heart hammering, limbs shaking, he got the gate open. 
further than he'd ever gone before without the sun in the sky. Amazed at himself, he aimed the light at the ground to illuminate the path and kept going. Now into the woods proper and verging on a heart attack, Streber ignored the reptile that lives in all of us and did not turn back. Out of range of his light, something slithered across the path. The woods went dead silent. Whitley kept going. Quote, Even though I wasn't sad, tears poured down my face. The inner man was crying. I felt like somebody was standing in front of me on the path, but there wasn't anybody there. There was no way for me to tell if I was really being menaced or if my imagination was running away from me. Finally, he made it out of the woods and into the meadow beyond. Crossing the meadow was not much easier, nor was traversing the dark country road that looped back around towards the relative safety of his home. But, finally, he reached it, alive and unscathed, and he gratefully sprinted inside. The late-night walk had done him good, he felt. At the core of his being was a frightened animal, Strieber tells us, a frightened animal that wanted to flee from these alien visitors and anything they might be offering. That, Strieber concludes, is where his real work had to be done. And now we're going to move into our next two discussion questions. Double header. Okay. Question three. Whitley Strieber's relationship with the visitors is highly fraught and constantly in flux. Drawing on our previous reading, what is your analysis of this relationship? Why do you think it's so all over the place? And what are your response to how all over the map his emotions are right now? I mean, I'm going to take a similar uh, approach to this that I take to uh, the paranormal concerns and saying, you know, it's probably all of the above. It's probably several different sources. And I think uh, regarding their relationship, it's the same way. There are several uh, contributing factors here, which I think uh, to, to him, you know, being in the lived experience, it, it, he's never going to be able to tell them apart. So it's all going to seem like it's coming from the visitor. I think probably part of it is his own cultural expectations being projected on the experience. Part of it is probably his own fears manifesting as nightmares or night terrors. Part of it might be communication with an outside intelligence or encounters with an outside intelligence. I think part of the reason it's so confused is because ultimately, regardless of if there is a third party, meaning the aliens or the outs, the others, uh, interfering in this process, I still see this fundamentally as the inner journey, as described uh, you know, in Western esotericism. So a lot of the conflict really is him dealing with the manifestations of his own fears and doubts, which, I mean, the others, the visitors, are a very uh, useful template to project that onto because they're so unknown. So any of his own fears or doubts he has about himself or things in his own life uh, I feel like maybe that is psychologically becoming his fears of the others. Uh, for example, he fears that they're soul eaters, right? And there's nothing in anything they've done or said which would lead to that conclusion. In fact, it came out of left field to, for me. I didn't see where he had drawn that conclusion. Um, but then, you know, thinking about it, obviously, uh, destruction of the soul, concern for the soul, that very much falls in line with his Judeo-Christian upbringing. And... Um, I I also noted that the uh, concerns over, I guess, the destruction of the soul, that was decidedly non-Judeo-Christian, but that almost was indicative of a belief that he would develop down the line. It's something he's mentioned in uh, several podcasts I've listened to. Uh, I believe it's also mentioned in the next book we're covering, Breakthrough. Um, but he, Strieber seems to have developed this belief 
that you know the soul is largely immortal. It is reincarnated over and over again. Uh, and our goal is to beautify it, to basically make it better every time we go through. But there is a way to fail in that. And if you perpetuate too much evil, too much darkness, uh, basically upon death, your soul is destroyed. So the fear of the soul eater very well could be the fear of personal failure, the fear of doing something or having done something that will lead to the destruction of his soul. At least that's how I, I read it. And Interesting. so, yeah, his relationship is complicated because I, he is complicated right now. He has yet to figure himself out. And until he does that, I mean, and based off what the things the visitors have told him, I don't think until he figures himself out, he'll be able to figure them out. And maybe it's the same for all of us that in order to really understand a true alien other, one must have a perfect understanding of self, which we do not have. Yeah. I think ultimately I, 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 I genuinely, generally agree with what you said there. I think that his, <clears throat> I think that his relationship with the visitors is, is so all over the place because he's trying to grapple with this in a very materialistic and like at first he's trying to look at this from a very materialistic sense, right? He's, he's drawing the comparisons to like other uh, folklore and occult things, but ultimately he's still trying to look at this as, is it physical? Is it not? When I'm not entirely sure that it's not one or it's not both. And it's just one or the other going back and forth. And he does like talk about that. Like later on in this book, he starts looking at it like, you know, maybe it's both, you know, physical and non, or that they, you know, it's another reality and then come into ours and they're, where the reality that they live in is not physical normally, you know, stuff like that. And I think ultimately he's trying to grapple with this as if it is completely separate from himself, that they are separate entities from himself. And I'm not entirely sure that that's, that's the case for any of us. You know, I don't, I, I don't know, obviously. Um, but I, like Nick said, I, I'm, I wonder if, it, you know, it's his grappling with it is so extreme because he doesn't know where he fits in with this yet. He doesn't understand himself and how he has to, to deal with this yet. And he's not, he's not doing the work, so to speak. Uh, because, and you know, he's still eating that damn chocolate. Well, and you know, he, he looks at that as it's not you know it's nothing it's just sweets and maybe he's right you know maybe it is nothing and it's and it's just sweets but ultimately for some people sweets are a crutch and you know he it, it maybe it's one of his vices that he always has these these sweets around so that he can eat them and you know by not working on overcoming that crutch by sacrificing the sweets he can't move forward in his path to enlightenment, to whatever it is, whatever vibrational level that we, he may need to be to communicate with these visitors or, or, or whatever it might be. Because we all have to go through that journey, right? A lot of this, believe it or not, a lot of the struggles that he goes through, especially the back and forth between the extremes, 
you know, do they do, should I fear them or should I love them? Like those extremes, right? Is very parallel to the journey that I went on when I was going through uh, my addiction issues. Because I would go from one extreme to the other. I was either all in partying and doing drugs, or I was trying to be an evangelical Christian. There, there was like no in between for me, you know, until I gave up one side, really, until I gave up both sides of the extremes, was I able to actually understand who the fuck I am and actually be able to walk my own path and figure out myself. You know, maybe that's what it is. Like, he needs to give up these little things that he's holding on to so that he can continue to move forward to achieve that golden city or whatever it is that they're trying to lead him towards. I, I also wonder if uh, the sweets are also just kind of the beginning. Like, you're going to have to give up a lot more of your current idea of yourself and your life in order to reach that golden city. If you can't get past giving up Dove chocolate bars... You're going to have a real problem when we ask you to, to give up, you know, meat. Or, or even, like, uh, thinking about uh, certain Eastern religions, like, if you really want to go the path of the aesthetic monk... I mean, you give up everything. You give up familial connections. You give up romance. You you give up children. Mm-hmm. Like you have to give up your fundamental connections to the world. In some traditions, I see Jay. Uh, I fucking the shit out of me because right now I'm sure I'm getting something yeah, wrong. No, it's because you said aesthetic instead of ascetic. Oh, oh, aesthetic. thank God! I I thank God I just mispronounced something. <laughs> yeah, I it's... can live with that. <laughs> no, it's yeah it. No, you are you are correct. Actually, the the ascetic monks uh, give up ev- the shadus. <laughs> the ascetic monks give up literally everything. The shadus over in India literally don't even like z- most Buddhist monks will live with other monks. The shadus, which are considered uh, mystics in Hindu traditions, don't even hang out with each other. They live alone in the desert, distant from cities and villages. And if you want to consult with a shadu, you have to hike into very harsh conditions and risk getting killed by snakes and bandits to even talk to them. Wild. And I, I, literally. I, like, wild. That is, that is intensely interesting. Yeah. But I am intensely distracted now because now I'm thinking about aesthetic monks. Like, I, I am not a monk. I just dig the aesthetic. Either that... Or monks who are like, uh, who like do YouTube makeup tutorials. Like, I'm going to teach you how to access your third chakra while also looking killer in a nighttime night sh- nighttime eyeshadow look. I mean, I want that YouTube channel now. I yep. want it to exist just because, not that I'd watch it, but just because that's fucking insane and that would be that'd be fucking hilarious. We're going to be doing some detailed glitter-based peacock feather eyeshadow work while at the same time I'm going to teach you how to levitate. Please, please <laughs> tell tell me more, Mister Zen Master. I I need to know more about this purple eyeshadow and levitation. The Order of the Fabulous Monks. Ah, oh, yes, that is the only monk that I will ever be fabulous. <laughs> okay, I have derailed this enough. I apologize. It's 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 also interesting, Rory, that you brought up the idea of the sugar almost being a test of like it's like can you give this up. Like we're, it's not even necessarily important. We're just seeing if you'll listen to us. Mm-hmm. I, because I, I just uh, you unlocked a memory from grade school when you said that. <laughs> yeah, of um, of the of the librarian at school reading a fairy tale to me about two different sisters who both go to apprentice for the same witch, and they like go on different weeks, 
And the first test the witch gives them is she hands them a stone and says, make soup from this. And the first sister complains and throws a tantrum. And she's like, I can't make soup out of a stone. And so they don't, they don't have soup. They don't eat that night. This and this sounds so familiar. Uh, this story. I think you, you think you may have heard this. I think I know this story. Stone soup. Yeah. yeah. And, and the second sister just is like, I'm not going to argue with my teacher and just kind of goes and puts it in the cauldron and just tries and makes this really thick, rich, nourishing soup. And the moral of the fairy tale is basically like there are times in your life where someone who is much smarter than you and is much more advanced along the path of enlightenment, I guess, though this story wouldn't have phrased it like that if it's Basically, sometimes your teachers are going to ask you to do something that seems like it doesn't make any sense. And sometimes it's not even with the goal of actually making something. It's like, do you trust me as your master, as your mentor, as your teacher? Do you trust me enough to just listen to me and just just do it? Just mm-hmm. just listen to me like. I'm not going to be able to get over the this the fact that I know this story from somewhere until my brain um, figures it out. So that's my rabbit hole later. Yay! Yeah. But um, but yeah, as in in terms of like, but so that's interesting. And like, as for my personal analysis of this, I have two kind of divergent paths in my head. One that I know is filled with only my own baggage and one that I think might be more accurate, at least to what is what is going on in, in Strieber's journey. Mm-hmm. Because the first one to me is like, this sounds like abuse. This sounds like traumatic bonding. But as Nick just pointed out, it's like, what did they actually do that actually hurt him? Right. I, I had a really I had the same thought, like that it sounded like uh it sounded like abuse, which is why the the parallels to my uh to my drug days is probably what hit me in the brain. Not, I mean, like I was abusing myself, but still. still, I mean, being addicted is an abusive relationship. It's just an abusive relationship to an inanimate thing. Right. Well, and to add to that, I think we also need to keep in mind, it, let's assume, hey, what if they are aliens from another planet who somehow can phase in and out of reality? Sure. Um, it's quite possible they're all individuals and some of them are assholes. Yeah, like that is also possible that sometimes he was dealing with a, a he was dealing with someone who was kind and empathetic, and sometimes he was dealing with a jerk who just wanted to get done with his shift so he could go to space go to a space bar and drink space Budweiser. You're not wrong. That's uh, yeah, no, that's that's also entirely possible. Of like, they're probably if they're like us in any way, they're not a monolith. There's going to be differences in them, and they're always not going to be their most perfect selves. Mm-hmm. The other path that I thought, which I think is much more likely and just makes sense in the broader context of it, is drawing again on Jenny Tyson is the idea of shadows, of shadow communication, of these things that are not actually coming from the universe. They're coming from inside you of your, your like you were talking about, Nick, your fears, your doubts, your internal pain just manifesting itself and kind of trying to prop itself up like it's real. You know, you know what I'm just remembering. Um, so in this book, at one point, uh, Streber is, I, I guess, punished for failing to failing to stop eat chocolate. Eating yeah. chocolate. Uh, he has that vision yep. of a guy lashed to a post, yep. and he is getting beaten to death uh, for Streber. You know, eating chocolate. That's what a good chunk of the last part of the summary is about. Well, my thought is here is, um, 
during that experience where he's seeing the punishment for his own errant ways playing out, he hears the female entity, the female uh, visitor, somewhere behind him saying, Witty, it's not real. Yeah. And it reminded me a lot of... um. He was, I think, Edward Kelly and the Angel Gabriel and all the vo- various voices of the of Jenny Tyson spirit guides when she was having her um, hallucinations caused by the shadows of saying it's not real. Yeah. So what if? Yeah. Maybe you're right. Maybe the bad parts are largely just manifestations of his own fears. Like, oh, oh back to what I was saying at the start. Yeah. I've it, come full circle. Exactly. And and to put that in possibly more theological terms. I, I've mentioned a few times before that enlightenment in, in Buddhist traditions in particular is not one and done. You, there's still more work to be done. It's, the test never stops, basically, in a lot of ways. And it almost feel that's what some of this feels like to me. It feels like chains binding him to samsara and attempting to pull him back to the world. Because People have different chains that are their biggest thing anchoring them to the cycle. And for Whitley, it's entirely possible that his biggest chain is just fear. Yeah. And that all of his fears towards the visitors is just the chains of this physical reality desperately attempting to stop him from reaching enlightenment. Because when we reach enlightenment, Samsara doesn't get to torture us anymore. Uh, Maybe. Actually, maybe that is also what we're seeing, which is where... The whole mythology of good guy aliens versus oh, maybe that's uh, what we're seeing. You know, where the whole mythology of good guy aliens versus bad guy aliens comes from. If we look at it from that perspective, it is really a conflict between those who exist beyond our reality and are trying to pull us towards it, and this predatory world, this predatory reality, which is feasting upon us. So maybe that is. So maybe that also explains the schism. Absolutely, it could. Well, especially if we're dealing with things that are thought forms and can, I guess, change their appearance as we've seen there are trickster elements to the phenomenon. I mean, can you imagine how confusing it would be if both sides could manifest the same physical appearance? If both, if the greys, some of them were sent by one side, some by another, and they just were using the same suit? They just all looked like the generic gray or whatever? Yeah. Oh, that'd be confusing. The devil comes to us as an angel. That's true. Ah! <laughs> accurate scream is accurate. Next question. Question number four is, I think, my personal favorite. We have to talk about Mrs. Sharp. We do. In the book, Whit- Whitley Strieber seems to pretty firmly believe that this was some sort of warning or message directed at him. And I, I just want to get your guys' thoughts. Do we think that this that this experience that Mrs. Sharp had was a message meant for him, or do you think this was some sort of coincidence? So, you know, many episodes ago, I don't remember which one, I said, in, the wor- in, in my own words, I said, I believe in both synchronicities and coincidences, right? I said yep. those words. I believe this is a coincidence. Because I don't think... That, I mean, the timing is, is, is ironic of, you know, when he met his friend, like there, there's the coincidence, you know, mm-hmm. but I don't believe if, okay, let me say that. Let me, let me say this. If the visitors did anything, all they did was line up the scenarios so that he would meet his friend 
so that Whitley would see, he would hear the stories about his friend's mom dying of, you know, diabetes and liver cancer, so that he might get the idea in his head that he needs to stop eating fucking sweets. Maybe. But I think odds are that's not the case. I don't believe that anything that Mrs. Sharp went through was a message for, for Strieber because I don't think that they would kill somebody to tell him to stop eating candy. Um, now I don't know because I, I, they're, they're not humans and, uh, I'm, I'm just going off of how I would hope that they would react or that how I hope that they would be, but I don't think that that is what happened here. I think if anything, it was just kind of a coincidence. And also the diabetes thing was second to the liver cancer. But but in the book, it was made to seem like the diabetes was, was over the liver cancer, but because it was only talked about diabetes until we found out that she died of diabetes and liver cancer. But here's the thing. Liver cancer is going to be what killed her here. Yeah. And that's completely fair. Yeah. Like, well, and then extrapolating the the great knit, like the, you know, this was meant to me, blah, blah, blah. Like, great that you took that out of it, but I do not believe that the visitors had anything to do with it because that lady died from liver cancer. She just also happened to be a diabetic. It won, which I think um, is a great example of some of the dangers of, I mean, we call it magical thinking, but also thinking about synchronicities. If you... Yeah go through life genuinely believing in synchronicities, um, anything can take on meaning and direct your action. And so you end up pursuing kind of these, uh, these lines of thought that don't really make sense from the outside. Yeah. Right. And so you, you, you see these events like, Hey, my friend's mom died of liver can- cancer and, uh, and diabetes. Well, all I heard there was the piece that furthers my own internal magical narrative being the diabetes. And I, I, I just want to point out that that is ultimately a very real danger uh with getting into the paranormal absolutely absolutely and i think this is a great example like you said of uh of somebody kind of just extrapolating on something that may not uh, may not be what it was and just trying to see lines that weren't there because they're trying to make sense of something that is so hard to make sense of i mean that said i i think it's entirely possible it was a message but i because i don't know right um right I, I did have one other thing I noted about Miss Sharp, though, that I wanted to bring up. Uh, Jay, I know you hit upon it in your summary, but uh, during her final days, she seemed to switch between two personalities. One was her and one was this kind of malicious version of her. Uh, her son said that she would seem to pretend to sleep so she could glare at him through her squinted eyes. And he got this deep sense of malice and almost a demonic energy off of it. And so I, I spun my wheels on that whole uh, piece a little bit, and I started thinking about it in context of some of the other books we've read. Okay, so in Mike Ricksecker's A Walk in the Shadows, he talks about the Egyptian concept of the fractal soul, right? And one of the pieces of the soul is the shadow, basically, the, uh, the dark parts of us, and that gets left behind when we leave, right? Well... Then we have this person in this stage of transition. They're going between life and death pretty frequently. They're on that cusp. So I started to wonder if what if what we're seeing happen there with her 
is kind of the two souls shining through at that last moment where sometimes it is her, the her we know, and sometimes it is kind of this collected manifestation of all of her doubts and her fears and her sins that are becoming the shadow that is going to be left behind on Earth. And the reason I think that that's interesting in terms of this book specifically is because, again, we go back to that golden city. There are no shadows there. So what if uh, that place, again, is the other world, is the spirit world, and it is where that piece of our soul goes, the piece that is uh, our light, as it were? That is that is a very that's that's a very interesting lens to interpret that through. And mm-hmm. you're like you're 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 correct. That is I I feel the need to offer a medical like oh, a, a, med- a medical explanation for that. And that base that medical explanation basically boils down to first of all, as we covered in I believe in Leslie Keene's book, um, people who are dying see visitors in their room all the time. It's normally people from their family, but things like what Mrs. Sharp are describing, like they're not uncommon, but they're not necessarily rare. And as for the behavioral changes and Nick, it's interesting that you brought up the 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 fract the, the the fractal multi-parted soul of the Egyptians because it's entirely possible that they developed that as a lens through which to understand what their own elders were going through as they died. Quite possibly, yeah. Be- because people who are dying, especially dying of something like liver cancer where they're in so much pain, become intensely paranoid. And especially if she at this point, it, it's not out of the realm of possibility that she was developing a form of dementia that was secondary to her primary diagnosis. It's entirely possible that she simply no longer understood what was going on, no longer fully remembered who these people were or why they were trying to force this stuff they were calling medicine down her throat. Especially if she kind of remembered like, I'm diabetic. That's sugar. They're not supposed to be giving me sugar. If she didn't, if she wasn't, was no longer able to fully orient herself in this situation, it's entirely possible that what her son was, son was interpreting as malice was just her growing deeply mistrustful of him and her desperate, and just the fact that it's like she, she felt helpless and alone. And like I, I mentioned a couple of times in this podcast that I've spent time working in hospice. I had clients yell at me, swear at me, try to throw things at me. And people who are sick and dying do strange things that don't make sense to us. And they often like it's Streber brought up the frightened animal that lives inside all of us. When you are dying and you are in pain and you feel like you can't trust the people around you, the frightened animal is the only thing that's left after a while. I mean, I, I do understand that. I, and I think that's very possible, uh, likely even. Um, I, I remember when my own, ex- I was in a car accident in 2008, I think, as I've mentioned before on the show. Yeah. Uh, and I spent uh, over a week in a in the neurology ICU because due to fractures in my spine. Um, and yeah, I, I you get to, I got to, I, I don't know if I ever got to the point where like I was pure animal brain, but. In the depths of sleep deprivation, knocked up on drugs and uh, having hallucinations that were out of this world. Um, At night, when I didn't feel like I could trust the night nurses, because I couldn't, I did not like the night nurses. They were mean. 
Um, I definitely started to get that kind of caginess to me. I would, uh, I found myself kind of shifty eyed watching them as they were walking across the room because it's almost like I was waiting for them to attack me. Yeah. Um, and so maybe, yeah, I, 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 I under, if that's, if that's the case, I understand exactly how she was feeling. Yep. I, I kind of not, not something to that extent, but, uh, I remember when I was 10 and I had several of my teeth taken out in preparation for braces, uh, my my orthodontist, like my oral surgeon afterwards told my parents like, oh, yeah, by the way, uh, Jay has this thing he does when he comes out of anesthesia. He immediately goes into fight or flight because apparently when I come out of st- anesthesia, other doctors have confirmed this since then. I start throwing punches if someone doesn't hold my arms down. Another thing that I looked up and I feel the need to talk about is liver cancer. It's not common but it's not uncommon can cause psychotic symptoms interesting very interesting (laughs) and so that is also something that has to uh, be considered when we're looking at uh, mrs sharp specifically um because when your liver's not working properly, all the toxins are building up in your bloodstream, and then, you know, that's going to affect your brain and how it functions. Uh, so, and it says here, what I got here, it says psychotic symptoms such as visual and uh, olfactory, Olf- I don't know, olfactory. Olfactory. Olfact- olfactory hallucinations may also be present. Interesting. So, yeah, I, I- something to consider. Unfortunately, I think unless we were living inside of Miss Sharp's head during this time, we'll never know. Yeah, no, of course not. No, absolutely not. But it's fun to speculate about. Yeah, of course. All right. Are we ready to move into the home stretch? Let's do it. Take me there. Upon returning to the city, yet another of Whitley's fears was tested. His brother Richard called him, telling him that he had to fly home and check on their mother. Richard and Whitley's grandmother had passed away, and now, months later, their mother was feeling the weight of her loneliness. Once again, Streber thought of his warning from the White Angel, two journeys, only one of which he could survive. You know, that's another interesting thing. White Angel makes me think of the god, too, because she was the white, like her name means like bent white goddess or, you know, white god of the crescent moon. Sorry. No, that that is... Another, another thing about that okay so maybe aliens aren't real and it was (laughs) celtic gods the whole time uh or it's the same thing no this is more fun because i'm imagining like a scooby-doo villain unmasking of (laughs) greys to reveal like the ancient celtic gods beneath (laughs) sorry not an alien just men and mclear so let's see who was really abducting andrew streber the Morrigan? <laughs> no, that's much worse. Oh, God, yes, it is. I, I mean, or it could be really good. It could be she that Andrew now has, like, the coolest vodka ant ever. I was going to say, which form of the Morgan? Because technically, she's a triple goddess, too. Well, that's the problem, is that she'll be cool at first, and then one day she'll just randomly behead him or something. And, you know, here, another another thing is uh, Cara Dwin, goddess of the moon, is in some some places some i don't know the right like some people who study druid druidry and celtic lore uh put her as part of the triple goddess with uh bridget i mean that would make sense with the moon because the moon is always seen in triplicate in Mm -hmm. in celtic culture and 
didn't a lot of their goddesses end up getting linked with the moon and then well yes and no she's like the primary one that's looked at as part of the moon but again she is in some 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 lines of thought yeah lines of thought they look at her as a triple goddess with uh uh with bridget brigitte however you want to pronounce her name um and she's like the she's one of the primary goddesses uh, that people look at in druidry and Celtic lore in general, even Celtic witchcraft, whatever. I am so glad you brought this figure up because it's again, it's it's such an interesting lens to look at some of these encounters, through, especially said like the the white goddess of the crescent moon, and then this this gentle beautific figure that came alone into his room one night was the primary description of it was white. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sorry. Didn't mean to sidetrack us again with that, but that was just another another point on that. I'd, I'd rather hear your thoughts than not, because you never know what's going to be the eureka moment to let something fall into place. True. Like with you guys last like last episode talking about, like, well, what if Anne's the Bodhisattva? Yeah. Still not a, I'm still not opposed to that theory. And I'm more and more on board with it after reading this book, especially it's just like she... she never rattled by almost any of this shit like she's already done it and just doesn't remember Mm -hmm. knowing he had to go he nevertheless wrestled with his dread what was death like what waited for him after he was not even certain in the existence of the human soul let alone heaven and what if his family his wife and his son could they really survive without him but he had to go On the plane, racked with terror, Strieber thought about his life, about his possible impending death, and tried to adopt a different point of view. What if, he mused, dying was the reward, not a punishment? Was earthly life a prison? Was he really, finally, going home? Though he was sick with dread throughout the entire flight, the plane touched down in Texas without a single hair out of place on anyone. Limp with relief, Strieber had a wonderful visit with his mother. To him, she suddenly seemed frail. While he was there, again and again, they talked about church, despite religion slinking out of their lives many years before. At their core, both still longed for the dim, familiar magic of faith. He'd need all the faith he could muster, as he had one more plane trip to survive before he was back with his wife and child. This trip was significantly rockier, too, with bad weather shaking the plane and delaying them by several hours. Next to him was a pilot who, to Whitley's horror, was growing visibly concerned. Consumed with panic, Strieber was desperate to see his family again, terrified of what fates would befall them in his absence. But as the seconds crawled by and the plane kept itself in the air, he realized that they'd live. They'd be perfectly fine, in fact, given time, and would carry him as a fond memory. They had their own destinies outside of him. All at once, a change came over him. He felt free, utterly cleansed of his fear of the great void of death. In fact, he almost loved it, could appreciate it as part of nature's grace and design, the natural conclusion of life. The storm broke, the plane landed, and Straber walked out of it a deeply changed man. Back in New York, Chapter 17 tells us, he was still eating sweets, and the visitors had apparently run out of patience. That November, upon returning to the cabin, both Whitley and Anne saw flying objects in the sky. Then, late at night, Whitley was awakened by a figure with massive, dark eyes standing beside his bed. 
The frightened animal returned, screaming in terror that this was a demon. Streber, however, tried to trust the love that he felt at the same time. His forehead was touched, and he felt strange energy buzzing there. A vision overtook him, showing him a stone room with iron shackles on the floor. Two figures entered, one dressed in black, the other naked and muscular. The naked man was placed into the shackles, and then the black-robed figure began to beat him senseless with a whip. The naked man screamed in agony, and Streber was obviously distraught, unable to bear the sight of the torture. Two voices fought for space in his head as the horrible act continued. One was telling him that this was his fault, that the naked man could not get Whitley to obey him and now needed to suffer the consequences. Another voice, one he was certain belonged to his female visitor from communion, was telling him that none of this was real. She was even calling him witty. Streber knew that this had to do with the fucking candy. Finally, he found himself back in his room and heard something even worse than what he'd left behind. Andrew was screaming. Even worse still, the entity beside his bed would not let him rise to check on his son. The next day, however, Andrew was unharmed, but Streber began the de-sugaring process in earnest all the same. One can't be too careful now, can they? Around this time, two simultaneous dramas played out that I do not have the space to go into here. In one storyline, Streber begins studying techniques for out-of-body experiences and has more than a little success. Some friends were even able to see him while he was out on his jaunts. Furthermore, he suspects he saw Sadie, the cat, doing the same thing, appearing in the cabin when she and Co. were actually back in New York. In the other drama I don't have time to go into, Communion had finally been published, and several relatives, friends, and acquaintances began seeing strange people doing even stranger things. A senior editor for the book's publishing house, for instance, saw two small figures, covered head to toe in heavy clothing, paging through copies of the book in a store, saying things like, that's not what happened, and got that wrong, too. But let us turn our attention to the incident on the night of December 23rd, 1986. On that night, after seeing anomalous light zipping through the skies above, Streber awoke at 3.30 a.m. Standing beside his bed was the female entity he'd grown so familiar with over the last year. Streber reached for the camera beside his bed, but was compelled by some strange force to leave it be. That same force pulled him from his bed and marched him out the bedroom door. Behind him, the female entity was touching him, pushing him along. All the while, Streber felt that old conflict, fear and desire, terror and love. He was also conflicted on if this was real or not. A potential answer presented itself. His cat, Sadie, was in the living room, and he picked her up, carrying her with him as he was taken towards his unknown destination. Poor Sadie. <laughs> Sadie's a good girl! Like, I, I just have this image in my head of her just chilling on the couch, being like, oh, yep, dad's getting taken by the weird gray monkeys again, and then suddenly she's fucking snatched off the couch and taken on a spaceship, and she did not sign up for any of this. She was napping. Put me down. I, I just imagine doing that to Watson or Murphy and how pissed off they would be. If I did that to Watson, uh, the visitors would have to, before teaching me great universal enlightening truths, put together my mangled flesh. Like, <laughs> yeah. I, he would tear me to fucking ribbons. Well, weirdly, you know what it first made me think of? Like, when he picked Sadie up, like, obviously, don't make your cat meet the aliens she'll be very traumatized but part of me was like no i get it 
Every time I have to walk into a room in this house at night and I'm too scared to do it, I pick up one of the cats. I'm like, you're coming with me. Like <laughs> every single Nick, there have been so many times before, like like when I when when I used to have to go outside to open the outer door to let the dogs back in. There were so many times where I just scooped Watson off the couch and took him with me to go do that because I was uh, terrified. No wonder he wants to go in the three seasons room. You were taking him there. That's hilarious. He was he never tried to get out of my arms. He I, I could cradle him in one arm like a baby and it was always fine. Yeah, but now he keeps trying to sneak into the three seasons room. I stopped doing it. This destination, it turns out, was not a spacecraft. It was a room with a desk and bookshelves and several bizarre visitors inside. A blonde, handsome man in a tan suit. Similar people had been seen by those who knew Whitley randomly on the streets. There was also a creature behind the desk. Long face, black eyes, and a ridiculous curly wig. And there was an ordinary-looking human woman just chilling nearby. Sadie the cat was still with him as he looked around frantically, spotting odd little details, like the only book sticking partway out of the shelf. It was titled, You Can't Go Home Again. Dun, dun, dun. Yep, didn't like that at all. He had brought Sadie along to help him gauge if this was real or not, remembering her panic on the night of the Nine Knocks. The visitors, however, did not see the purpose of Sadie, and apparently used psychic force to compel him to explain her presence. According to Streber, they were absolutely baffled as he told them, First, about his choice to use her as a biosensor, and secondly, the deeper truth. Sadie was a part of his family, he explained, and it was her right to come along and be a part of things. You know what? Good for him. Yeah, I get that. Yep. I get that. You know, it's why, um, you know, when I was in the hospital, I abducted my hamsters and took them there with me. Because mm-hmm. that was safe for all the other patients. They only burrowed into a couple of coma ward patients. Yeah, no big deal. What kind of fucking hamsters did you have? Like giant, warm, wet habitrails. Psychotic hamsters, that's what. Yeah, I mean, yes, they were, they, were, they were mean. But, for some reason, the cat was a real monkey wrench for our hardworking ETs. Using some kind of bronze or brass instrument, the human woman touched Sadie's fluffy thigh, and she went still as death. That is a quote. As if remembering yet more hidden scenes, Streber realized he'd seen them do this before. Sadie would be okay. Thank fucking God. Finally, the visitors asked him a simple question. What can we do to help you? Suddenly, Streber no longer gave a fuck about physical proof, about photos or any of that. He wanted help with his fear, specifically his fear of them. The visitors said it would be hard, but they would do their best to grant his wish. Before he left, the human woman touched his neck with the same instrument that they used on Sadie. There would be a red mark there in the morning. The female entity, who was seeming less and less all-powerful and more like a soft old woman, brought Whitley out of that room and towards another. Mentally, he tried to ask the female visitor about a strange but powerful dream he'd had, a twinkling star slowly falling towards a mystic ocean. It was beautiful, and like the Golden City, he asked to see it again. He felt a wave of contempt, possibly from the female visitor, and then he and Sadie were back on the porch. Sadie awoke late the next day, and was nervous and withdrawn for weeks afterward, clinging to Streber's side. Gradually, she seemed to recover, but he vowed to never put her through that again. In Chapter 20, the visitor's assistance began almost at once. Since the beginning, images of owls had plagued him at every turn. 
Now, both he and Anne were seeing them around the cabin in broad daylight. Streber knows why they remind him of the visitors. Powerful, seemingly all-seeing predators coming down from dark skies to carry off helpless prey. On the other hand, he reflects, is life not sweeter after it is fought for? A friend of a friend stumbled into Whitley's life around now. He had recently had a dream that both fascinated and terrified him, of being dragged into a strange chamber where an owl transformed into a bird of paradise. At first, Struber grew more afraid as more evidence mounted that these events were real and physical. He could no longer enter the woods at night, and the next time he managed to do so, he was chased all the way home by an unnatural howling. Once again, animal doubts rose in his mind. His family was most certainly doomed. Andrew, meanwhile, was growing less afraid of the visitors. I fucking love this kid. Uh, yeah. No, he's great. Yeah. <laughs> the very next night, however, Streber had had enough. Summoning the same courage that got him on the plane and then into the woods the first time, he dove down the dark path. Once again, crying in terror, he kept walking through the deep shadows of the woods and into the meadow beyond. The shadows before him moved. Something was coming closer. Struber accepted his death, just like he had on the plane, and then five deer emerged into view. The buck and his four does blinked and snorted at him as Struber stared back. Then they were gone, leaping off into the night. The final chapter is called Beyond Nightmare, fitting given what Whitley just showed us. Here, in what would be a novel's falling action, Struber walks us through the summary of his beliefs about this entire affair. Firstly, he believes that both our government and the visitors themselves are working to keep the general public ignorant of them. He derives this from what Director Hillencotter, former head of NICAP, said when he stepped down, that the Air Force had no moves left to make. It was up to the visitors now. Secondly, to him, it is obvious that they could announce themselves at any time to anyone and seem to simply choose not to. And finally, they have thwarted his every attempt to capture images of them. Perhaps, he muses, this is to ensure we are helpless, overwhelmed, and terrified when first contacted. Not for malicious purposes, no. Instead, he believes that this very state may be necessary to the growth we need to undergo. Like the moon crumbling in the sky, catastrophe brings great change. Next, he makes some tentative assertions about the possible nature of the visitors. They seem to operate on both a physical and non-physical level, and they may be naturally non-physical. Based on his research, either they have been here since we first started writing weird shit down, or they are taking steps to make us think that. They possess some ability to read our minds and possibly control our thoughts or emotions. They are trying to teach us about the nature of our souls, that they are in fact separate from our bodies. They can demonstrate this by literally taking our souls out of our bodies for brief periods. Their communication is more symbolic and theatrical than verbal. And finally, they helped him confront many of his subconscious fears. Now he feels stronger and firmly believes that these are benevolent creatures here to teach us and not to bring us harm. Maybe this world is not a prison, but a school, and their purpose is to antagonize us into learning the needed lessons. And with that, our final discussion question. Okay. At the midway point of Summer of Streber, how has your understanding of Whitley's experiences evolved from this second book? Hmm. So I think for me, um, this book is called Transformation, and I think that's very apt. Uh, the reason is because in the first book in Communion, uh, while there was some hints of the mind-bending elements of his encounters or the spiritual elements of his encounters, 
Uh, it largely was I got taken on a ship and was kind of stalked by aliens, right? Um, and spent some time trying to figure out what that all meant. Well, in this one, we, we start the process of reinterpreting the events that he's experienced through a more spiritual lens, through the lens of this is about teaching me something. It's about coming to some un in internal understanding of the self, which, again, harkens to most major uh, esoteric traditions. So I, I think that ultimately this book is a transition book, I, which is why I feel like it was a little muddled for me. It, it, it kind of... Uh, wandered a bit without really getting to a point. And I think that I mean, that is because ultimately he was walking us through step by step how he went from I was abducted by aliens to I am on some sort of spiritual pilgrimage. Um, and towards the end of the book, we see him really starting to try to take those steps towards it. Uh, we see a couple of his first faltering steps where he fails to go into the woods, uh, where he reacts in animal terror to a couple of visits from the others. Where he won't stop eating the goddamn sugar. Or where he abducts his cat against her will. Yeah. Um, but the point, so the point is, though, that I, I feel like ultimately this is, this book and the next book, Breakthrough, really to me feel more appropriate if they're one book. Because in this book, what we've gotten is I struggled and I have begun to understand the struggle is the point. All right. And that's as far as we've gotten. Um, and I, I think, and I feel like the journey from here is going to get decidedly more woo. The further you go into Whitley Streamer, the more woo it becomes. Yeah. Um, so we're going to be leaving behind a lot of descriptions of physical craft and uh, alien autopsy rooms and probes, and we're going to be moving more towards, uh, like we saw in this book, visits by the Angel of Death, uh, <laughs> views of this golden mythic city, uh, the dark neighborhood, all these things. Now, of course, we do have some stuff which harkens to the typical uh, UFO experience or narrative, such as uh, seeing another planet. But then we come back to, is that really another planet? Is that a state of mind? Is it uh, someplace that exists in the astral? We don't know. And I, I think the point of this book is Streber doesn't know either. Um, so ultimately, I mean, the cool thing about this book, the thing I liked most, is it really did feel like we were figuring it out with Strieber because he very clearly when he wrote this book still really wasn't sure how he felt or or what he believed about any of this yeah um which is a fun journey to go on but like i said i do feel like this book on its own feels incomplete i i feel like it is I, like every every single uh second book in a trilogy it existed to bridge between books 1 and 3 yeah i think uh I I agree. I think that the it's obvious that this is like the title of the book suggests the transformation, and if for no other reason, it's in story. It's a transformation from the initial shock of the abduction scenario in the materialistic sense into the more, as Nick said, the woo side of it all. Uh, so I I think, yeah, I I. I think that we're, a, if we thought it got wild now, I anticipate that it's going to get wild in the next book. Um, because the the deeper you just, I mean, just in general, the deeper you dive into spiritualism, like the more almost out there it, it's going to get just in general. Um, but I think overall, like my understanding of his, uh, of his experience and how it's changed, I I think that 
you know, whatever happened, whatever it is, I think that what we are witnessing by reading these books is his literal grapple, grappling with whatever it is and trying to make sense of it like any of us would do in his scenario and in his shoes. Um, one thing that I, uh, that, that I will say I found personally, I found this one a lot harder to read than communion. Not because, uh, you know, I, I think that's kind of ironic because I think the themes of this book are probably more in line with what I believe in or what I might believe in or how I would approach looking at things. But there are way, the, I think it was mostly in the way that he wrote aspects of it. It was just so jarring. It would go from like this very beautifully written, like descriptive thing of, of, of something and then all of a sudden it was over and we were just back into almost stream of conscious thought, uh, a detail going from one thing to the next. Yeah, it, 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 it almost was like he had the images, right? He had his fractured memories. Mm-hmm. And some of those images were very evocative. But getting bet- from image to image, he got a little lost. Yeah. But no. granted... I also think that might reflect how he was feeling. Yeah, no, and I don't necessarily think it wasn't it, it, like it. I think it felt it fit the story. Like I think it made like ultimately it made the story like it made sense. Like it wasn't. It was just jarring for me as a reader uh, to like get this very descriptive image and then all of a sudden it's done and we're moving forward and sometimes it's like we don't talk about this again. You know. And that's that's just tough as a reader, but I think that I think that you know if there was no way around it, you know there was no way for him to be more descriptive without adding stuff that may not have been true, you know. And I think one thing I can say is he is trying very hard to be open and honest and transparent with what he believes is happening and what he believes is going on as it evolves. I I just thought about this, even though I haven't read the books, but based on a conversation that we've had with uh, Tobias Wayland, it reminds me a lot of the evolution of Charles Fort's books, you know, uh, as they evolved throughout the books that he wrote, he even would go and say things like what happened or what I said in this book is bullshit you know, because I believe this now, or this is what I'm thinking now or whatever. And I kind of got a very similar vibe in, uh, in this, you know? Yeah. I, well, I mean, I, I get that. I think, uh, another thing that may though have contributed to the uh, confusion. I also just want to point out is the, uh, Mary hell he plays with the timeline. Yeah. He jumps oh, yes. back and forth in time. So frequently I was often lost that said, Again, I feel like the effort here was not to maybe not to make it make what happened to him as crystal clear to the readers as it must make his emotional state crystal clear to the readers because he was uncovering, you know, he was uncovering memories of the past in his modern life. And some of those memories of the past might relate to either other memories or things that are happening in the current in his current life. And so he felt the need to batch them together. Um, I feel like it was probably a very confusing period in his life. Oh yeah, no doubt, no no doubt. I mean that I feel like that. Uh, I feel like that comes across in my summary because now I had to jump around in the timeline a lot, mm-hmm. like to the point where when I realized at one point that I had to somehow in my summary get across the idea of he is talking about a summer that happened many years 
before the events of this book and somewhere and at some point in between that summer and the events of this book in 1972 he remembered something that might have to do with the summer that happened before 1972 that is relevant to what is happening in this book because of this encounter he's having with the filmmaker and i walked away from my computer for half an hour if i was like <laughs> i you know i could just get in my car and not stop driving <laughs> but um i think the biggest the biggest change for me after reading this book is I and I remember what page it is on specifically on page 184 he 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 basically communicates what at that point his understanding of the visitors was that he basically felt like they gave up like I mentioned earlier they gave up union with a perfect love in order to come back and help him because they were they were making some sort of great sacrifice that they were giving up bliss in order to come help him and that is literally just what a bodhisattva is right and furthermore is this i consider just a mild synchronicity when you know i made the joke about andrew giving his rendition of the diamond sutra i pulled that term out of thin air of like what is a religious text i know that's like not the sermon on the mount Mm -hmm. that could possibly fit here and i just went diamond sutra and then a day later, I was like, what the fuck's in the Diamond Sutra again? Because it's been so many years that I just didn't remember what was in there. The Diamond Sutra opens with the author of the sutra uh, asking the Buddha, what is the way of the Bodhisattva? Oh, wow. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And, and it's also because the, what he described them giving up perfect love, that's not necessarily Buddhism. That's more in line with Sufism. Mm. Sufism believe Sufis believe that the ultimate reality that God is true perfect love that right. is, exists outside of our physical reality and that so basically my biggest understanding my biggest evolution of my understanding of this experience and this is I mentioned this earlier that I feel like it largely comes from inside him I'm not saying it's not real I'm not saying it's imagine he's imagining it there's entirely it's entirely possible and Based on what he said in this, there's evidence of intelligent beings that exist outside of him and outside of people with their own agenda, at least pushing this along. But, but it, it, I, what I'm trying to say here is it feels like he is pulling from mystical traditions that he never studied, but it seems almost like he's pulling them from some kind of universal unconscious it's interesting, yeah. Yeah, or that he that he is, because again, that they gave up perfect love to came back, come back and help me. Get, that is just what a bodhisattva is, and it see he never uses that word, and I I have reason to believe that it's like he doesn't know what that is at this point in time, and it's just so fascinating that that is the kind of phrasing that he used and the kind of lens he was analyzing them through. It's kind of like the comparison that we've made previously. It's like, yeah, there's loose evidence that, uh, that like Jesus might have studied Buddhism, but ultimately we don't know. And if he didn't, he was still, he was still preaching the same style of message as like, as like, uh, as I think it was like Zen Buddhism and things like that and where did that come from yeah you know uh, well because there's some there's some apocryphal testimony and by apocryphal i mean 
it was non-canonized and we have a lot of reason to believe that it's not possibly true that basically he spent many years away from Nazareth traveling and studying and it wouldn't necessarily have been Zen Buddhism. The more likely tradition he would have studied would have been the original Theravada because it is theoretically possible he made it as far as to better China. And but uh, yeah, and it's I'm glad that you brought up that you brought up Jesus because that that image of the the muscular naked man being yeah. beaten with yeah. a whip and the statement he couldn't get you to obey him and now he must suffer the consequences. That is literally just a that is basically in many ways a poorly explained description of what Christ did. Yeah. You could not God could not get you to obey the covenant so a different version of him came down here to suffer a torturous death for your sins. Yeah. After, wow. Yeah, well, I, and, that's weird. I didn't actually think about that comparison. That's funny. Well, and another interesting point there is when he woke from that vision, Andrew was screaming, and he yeah. had the impression that Andrew was being punished for his for what he had done, for not giving him sweets. The son was being punished. Yep. The son was being punished for the father's failures. Yep. Right. And yeah, exactly. And and that's that that is what I was trying to get at when I was saying this feels like it comes from inside him because he didn't even make the Christ comparison, but later on, but you know, at around the same time in the book, he was talking about, he went back to his mother and they were both talking about like their faith. Yeah. yeah. And how the church doesn't really serve them anymore, but they're longing for it, which that's one of the many things in this book that I actually vibed with very hard of like, same. yeah, that I, yeah, it's, it is, it is hard. Even if you know, it's not helping you anymore. Yeah. It's like, this was my community and my culture and my biggest source of comfort. Like, yeah. I was a Christian for still the vast majority of my life. I long for it all the time. I have been a heathen since the moment I entered this world. I don't know what I believe. I'm just wandering from temple to temple, insulting everyone. Not insulting, not just asking questions they somehow find offensive. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, it just, to me, it feels like, and I don't, again, I don't think that he's necessarily inventing the visitors, especially mm -hmm. within this context. I it's entirely possible that they are just that they are just the fucking ayahuasca dispensers that are helping him go on this inner journey and that most of the things he sees were just generated from his own subconscious and that's where things like the like like the image of the Christ-like man being beaten for his transgressions comes from. Mm. Yo, it's interesting. I mean I think I've mentioned this before. I don't know if it was on the show or off air, but um, it, it does remind me of the idea of what if the others, the visitors, are the native denizens of the inner reality described in esotericism. So, because remember, uh, going way back to Gary Lockman, um, several of the ancient philosophers talked about the inner world as not not as just being your thought space as a very concrete, real other place. It just exists in the world of thought, and you get there through a road that goes through yourself, basically. We're all connected to it, and the only way to get there is to go within. But several of them also said that, no, there are things that live there that breathe, eat, and live and die in their own separate reality. And so when you go there, you have to understand you might interact with other people there, and that's okay. That's to be expected. So again, what if uh, what the visitors are are agents of that other reality trying to get us to come and talk with them, trying to, again, we go back to communion. 
And they're trying to form a perfect union with their other self. The two halves of reality, two sides of the brain, the dualistic nation, notions of the universe, whatever you want to call it, are perpetually trying to balance with each other. That's interesting. I mean, big if true. Big if true. <laughs> and it, it would also, like, because it won, and that that's also interesting because at several points in this book, I, I think at several points, Streber posits of it's like, they might just be as freaked out and confused by us as we are by them, and it's possible that them acting like they're in control of the situation is largely an illusion. Because he was wondering at several points, it's like, the menace that I feel off of them is that maybe their animal brain trying to like reflect the aggression of it's like, okay, uh, earlier this week I was one of this, I was with one of these guys and they pulled a shotgun on me. Have you guys ever uh, seen a shotgun? Devastating. Well, remember when we were talking to Les Velez, he was saying one of the abductees that he worked with. Uh, reportedly tore the arm off a visitor that came yeah. into his bedroom. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, if I was going to go talk to a giant ape that was four times my size and could rip me limb from limb and was prone to just doing it, um, yeah, I'd be nervous as shit, too. I might put on some cardboard armor. Yeah. And again, I think of the bodhisattvas who return to a world ruled by suffering out of the desperate desire to lift their fellow humans out of the muck. Yeah. Man, I hope that's true. Like, <laughs> of all the various things the visitors could be, that is far and away one of the most positive. They are our spiritual counselors, and they're here to help us get past our shit so that we can, you know, get on being peaceful and utopian and all that. Yeah, I uh, I hope that that's the one that's true. Yeah. Although I I say I hope that's the one that's true, even though I I genuinely believe, sadly, a giant portion of our population would just look at that offer and say no. Oh uh, God, yeah, they uh, would. But I mean, I guess that's your. If it is truly about personal enlightenment, that's their choice. Yep. It's also again in most Buddhist traditions, there's the very strong idea of like. Not every lifetime is for the work of enlightenment. Mm. Most lifetimes are for another sort of dharma where you take care of your family and you do your job and support your community and you basically allow the monks and the nuns to do the work of their enlightenment in that lifetime. And at some point, it will be your turn or you will be ready and you will be called. But yeah, it's it's actually not necessarily a bad thing to refuse enlightenment if you are not ready to do the work it's in fact the better idea because i've mentioned many times on this show that some buddhists some some buddhists and i think some hindus and other mystical other mystics believe it's like if you do it wrong it will make you crazy you know i was thinking earlier about you know we were talking about uh Struber being asked to give up sweets and we raised the idea of what if that is the first step and like, what would you give up for enlightenment? And so I started thinking through that for myself and I came to the realization, oh, there is a hard limit. Like there is a point where if I had great truth in front of me, but I had to give up, say, um, I had to give up my wife. If I had, you know, which I, I love her dearly. If I had to give up uh, my family or if I had to give up uh, my writing, for example, which brings me a lot of uh, emotional stability, I, I, I mean, some of them, like writing, I'd be insanely hard-pressed to the point of saying, I don't believe I could do it. I really don't think I could eschew emotional attachments to other people, especially like my wife, my friends, my family. 
And so maybe maybe uh, if if that's right, if you know if what you just said is is the correct view of reality, uh, then this is most definitely not the life that I'm going to be doing that work because I got a lot of other shit that preoccupies my thoughts all the time. Yeah, yeah. No, I I would fail miserably because they'd probably want me to give up like technology and shit and like. Ah, uh, that's gonna be tough for I me. I think your first one probably be nicotine. Oh God, yeah, that'd be my first one. Yeah, every every single thing that's popping into my mind that they could possibly ask me to give up, I'd just be like, nope. Soda. No. That'd be the first one. No. Pot. No. <laughs> uh. You keep going because I've got all night. I'm not sure you do. All night to say no. No, I think we can move on from there. Sleeping till two in the afternoon. <laughs> no. But that no. one. That one's gonna change. I, that's not even my choice. Capitalism will force me to make that choice, and that doesn't get to count. Yeah. <laughs> Unless they're behind capitalism. They better fucking not be. In which case, we're living in a weird, like, spiritual version of cyberpunk. If they're if they're behind capitalism, then they are fucking up their message somewhere along the way. Listen, listen, let's contact Sadie Streeper and see if in her feline wisdom she knows if the wis- if the visitors are behind if, capitalism. If Sadie Streeper is still alive, then we need to check out that yeah, cat. She she is not, sadly. Yeah. Um no, I'm, I'm, Well yeah, no. she'd be like forty. No, but just imagine that. Just imagine, you know, the aliens come and say there are two things which are most important in the universe. Number two is coming to a deep loving, spiritual understanding of yourself. What's the first most important? Money. (laughs) No. I do not trust these visitors. Their (laughs) message contradicts itself. They can go the fuck away now. (laughs) Enlightenment can be yours for 20 easy payments of 1999.99.99. For 20 easy payments, I get the fuck off my planet. (laughs) (laughs) Um... Do we have any other closing thoughts? I, I think that's it. Uh, my, my brain is, as usual, pudding. Do we have a part two to the About the Author? We do. Then let's, uh, let's get into that. Okay, so it's not really about the author. It's about some of his writing. Um, so for this one, we're going to be reviewing Mr. Streber's fiction work, largely because throughout this book, he mentioned that he realized much of his fiction was likely inspired by subconscious memories of his abduction experiences. So I figured this would be kind of fun. Let's run through these. And I think, honestly, looking through this, you can see an ongoing anxiety with uh, visitations by an outside supernatural force, especially ones that are here to either seduce someone away or are these predators hiding in cracks in in the world. So um, going through these, his first book in 1981, The Wolfen, follows the story of two New York City policemen who find themselves investigating a series of attacks from werewolves who lives in from werewolves who live in the cracks in reality. In 1983, he released The Hunger, which follows the story of a which follows the story of immortal vampire Miriam Blaylock in her quest to find eternal companionship at the expense of a pair of scientists. 1983, The Night Church, a young couple gradually discovers they are central in the plans of an ancient satanic cult. Which actually I found funny because that totally lines up with that being part of the satanic panic. Delightful. 1984 War Day, a fictionalized account of Streber and his co-author James Kanetka's tra- a fictionalized account of Streber and his co-author James Kanetka traversing the apocalyptic wasteland of America five years after a limited nuclear exchange. 1984 Black Magic, an occult thriller exploring a satanic conspiracy to control the human mind. 1985 A Wolf of Shadows, 
follows one man and his pet wolf struggle to survive in a nuclear wasteland. 1986, Cat Magic, presumably about Sadie, follows the story of Maywell, New Jersey, and the witches who live there. Their sleepy life is upset when one local scientist, experimenting with a cat, discovers the secret of reanimation. 1987, Nature's End, a science fiction novel set in 2025, which follows several characters around the world as they begin to deal with the total ecological collapse of the natural world. And let's hope that one wasn't prophetic. 1989, Majestic, a fictionalized version of the Roswell crash, which follows the story of the Majestic Agency director Wilfred Stone in his quest to cover up the UFO phenomenon. 1991, The Wild, follows the story of one New York man's sudden transformation into a wolf and his wife's struggle to return her husband to normal. 1992, Billy, follows the abduction of Billy Neary and his desperate struggle to survive. That one's just a thriller. 1992, Unholy Fire, follows the story of a young priest accused of murder and the shadowy supernatural force that's trying to ruin him. 1994, The Forbidden Zone, a story of monstrous supernatural horror about a predatory entity that preys upon the young lovers who gather at a nearby Neckin Hill. 1999, the, cl- 1999, the Coming Global Superstorm, co-written with Art Bell, this novel follows the emergence of an apocalyptic storm brought on by climate change. The Stormlight Archives? <laughs> no. Uh, this book would later be adapted into the film The Day After Tomorrow. Oh, oh really? Yeah. Oh, that's funny. I didn't know that. Yeah. I, I like that movie. <laughs> Me too. Uh, one of Dennis Quaid's better ones. I yeah. have never seen it. Uh, it's it's worth it. It's a, it's a fun ecological thriller. It's like a, a lot of other disaster movies, but it was earlier than most of them, so it was good. I think you'd actually like it. Neat. Uh, 2001, The Last Vampire, which is a sequel to The Hunger and continues the story of vampire Miriam Blaylock in which she finds herself in the crosshairs of vampire hunting Interpol agents um, who also find, oh, sorry, who finds herself in the crosshairs of a vampire hunting Interpol agent who also finds himself infatuated with Blaylock. Interesting. 2002, Lilith's Dream follows the story of Paul Ward, vampire hunter, as he and his team set out once and for all to confront the mother of vampires, Lilith. 2006, The Greys, a novel directly inspired by his own experiences. It covers the story of the Greys and their secret plans for humanity, as seen through various characters involved in the conspiracy to different extents. Though, we should note that the Greys in the book seem far more insidious than the entities described in Communion and Transformation. Uh, 2007 through 2012 follows the story... No, God damn it. 2007... Okay, let me rephrase. In 2007, he released the book 2012, which follows the story of the 2012 apocalypse, including the emergence of alien soul eaters who began harvesting humanity before they can be wiped out. Gee, I hope the 2012 apocalypse doesn't happen. Sounds like that would be hard. (laughs) 2008, the Nye Incidents, co-written with Craig Spector, The novel follows the story of a medical examiner investigating the murder of an alien abductee. 2009, Critical Mass, a book exploring a terrorist nuclear attack on the U.S. Capitol. 2010, Omega Point, a solar event causes an apocalyptic disaster on Earth. Aided by killers and strangers who may be from beyond the stars, scientist David Ford races to save the human race. 2011, The Hybrids, a science fiction action film. Uh, It's not really a film, I don't know. A science fiction action book about... I didn't say that right either. A science fiction action novel about humanity's infiltration by government-created alien-human hybrids. 2011, Melody Burning, a young adult romance following Beresford, 
a man who lives inside the walls of a posh high-rise apartment and who soon develops a, and who soon develops an infatuation with one of its pop star tenants. In 2018, 2014, and 2016, he released he released editions in a series called The Alien Hunter, uh, titled Alien Hunter, Alien Hunter Underworld, and Alien Hunter The White House, which is a series which follows a group of secret police and government agencies who discover the abduction phenomenon and set out once and for all to put an end to the plans of the insidious others. And in 2018, his latest novel is New, which follows the story of what appears to be a new species of hominids, one with intelligence comparable to humans, when they are discovered in the depths of the Amazon and, and are immediately enslaved for corporate interests. And that, that is, uh, I mean, I think there's one or two books I might have missed in there. But throughout a lot of them, you can see this ongoing uh, anxiety about, well, not only about being abducted, but you have these anxieties about being seduced. You know, you have Miriam Blaylock uh, considering his weird relationship with the female other. That seems like it might uh, might be something in there. Mm-hmm. Um, I also noticed a couple where it's about somebody transforming and their family trying to kind of bring them back to normal. I wonder if that could be inspired by some of the anxieties that came about within his own uh, family structure during this time when dad was going crazy and being abducted by aliens. Yeah. I mean, he and Anne took a lot of steps to try and keep Andrew away from all of this shit, and it became very clear in this book that they just could not do that. Right, yeah. Well, and another thing that I, I, going through this list, it really hit me. Um, If you look at a lot of those early books, like especially through the early 90s, a lot of those books I've heard of as a fan of horror. I mean, they they were very popular when they came out. Um, and in many ways, Strebert was on track to being, I wouldn't say the next Stephen King, uh, b- b- based on book sales alone, but the next Dean Koontz. You know, he, was, he was on track to uh, have a wide and well-read horror following, which got completely derailed by the release of Communion. Yeah. Yep. And it, it's interesting to me to see you know, this guy who had everything I desperately want, uh, being compelled to throw it away. I mean, I, I doubt he thought he was throwing it away, but still be compelled to kind of step out of that role and take a giant gamble by coming forward with his experiences. And I think that speaks to the power of the experiences he had because he had everything to lose uh, by talking about his alien abduction experiences. Some could say that he went through a transformation. Dun, dun, dun. That's the title of the book. Oh my God. Yes, it is. Thank you. Thank you. We, I, I, I missed it. I, I'm I, doing my best here. I thought it was called Skippy's Day Out. I'm doing my best here, you fuzzy land predator. So with that, <laughs> are we ready to go into housekeeping? Yeah, we are. <laughs> Please. So, if you liked what you heard... Please like and subscribe on whatever podcasting platform that you are listening on. And if it's Spotify or Apple, drop us a five-star review. If you leave one unique enough, maybe we'll even read it on air. Maybe. No guarantees. No, not even a promise. Not, not nothing. But you should do it anyway. Do it. And if you want to you wanna give us a book suggestion, you want to yell at us, you want to compliment us on how great we are, you can go ahead and do that. Noctificantpodcast at gmail.com. Or... You can find us on Twitter at Noctivigant Pod, and I'm at Mix Rory Wicks. I am at Bearish Terror. I'm at Midwest Undead. And all those handles are now actually in our description of our show, so you don't have to try and uh, like find them. They're just there for you to click on. Um, 
But other than that, we've got an Instagram, Noctivian underscore podcast. There is a Noctivian podcast Reddit account. And there is an Octivigant podcast Tumblr where I'm attempting to post memes more frequently. <laughs> memes. So many memes. I might start using Tumblr Blaze and punish everyone with my bad posts. <laughs> but I think that's everything. So what's next? Uh, next up, we have an interview with a, a very interesting researcher out of Australia named Mary Rodwell, mm-hmm. uh, who's done a lot of research into elements of the UFO phenomenon that I have not. Yeah. Uh, including the My Labs, um, uh, Secret Space Program, Star, Star Children. Children. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was interesting. I, I definitely heard some ideas there that I've never heard anywhere else. That, yep. Yep. And then after that, we are going to be covering the third book in the Communion Saga, which is going to be Breakthrough, uh, yes. which Rory's going to be leading us on through that. And look forward to uh, the next one after that, because we're going to be going into one of Strieber's newer works, A New World. And interspersed in there, we have a couple really cool interviews coming your guys' way. Yeah, yeah. The the conclusion of the Summer of Streber is one that you will want to stick around for. Just saying. Yeah, we're going to all, like, live on air, swallow Drano, and you're just going to hear us gurgling as we die. Not going to happen. I'll get them. Don't worry, listeners at home. I'll get these two to participate. His obsession with the whole Drano thing is, is it's becoming a problem he's bringing up at family events now. How can you say that I am, I would be a great cult leader, but you won't join me on the mass suicide? Because you are not escalating in the steps that I laid out for you. Yeah, you are I, trying to do this too fast, I and am, we have talked about this. I am a cult artiste. I am not going you to don't be know limited what you're doing. by the steps of what the establishment does. Also, I don't want to join a cult that's Jim Jones-like. Just saying. Shit. That's a good point. Putting suicide on the flyers is probably why I haven't had any converts yet. I have talked. We have talked about this. <laughs> oh, oh this, this got real dark. I need to get it out of this basement. Yeah. How about, uh, how about Jay? You just go ahead and lead us on out of here. Please. Good night, ghosties. Good night, ghoulies. Good night, moth people. Be safe out there on those midnight roads. <laughs> yes. This time, do be safe. Don't listen to Nick. He's wrong. Be Rain safe. Over. Be completely safe. Be 100% safe. In fact, don't even go on the roads. You see? I'm wrong, so now it won't be safe.
Drano is not as delicious as it looks like when it's in the bottle. 